This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Tony and the Beatles by Philip K. Dick. It's read by Ian Bradford Nunganunga Taha Pugh. It runs 31 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tony and the Beatles by Philip K. Dick. Recording by Ian Bradford Nunganunga Taha Pugh. Reddish-yellow sunlight filtered through the thick quartz windows into the sleep compartment. Tony Rossi yawned, stirred a little, then opened his black eyes and sat up quickly. With one motion, he tossed the covers back and slid to the warm metal floor. He clicked off his alarm clock and hurried to the closet. It looked like a nice day. The landscape outside was motionless, undisturbed by winds or dust shift. The boy's heart pounded excitedly. He pulled his trousers on, zipped up the reinforced mesh, struggled into his heavy canvas shirt, and then sat down on the edge of the cot to tug on his boots. He closed the seams around their tops and then did the same with his gloves. Next, he adjusted the pressure on his pump unit and strapped it between his shoulder blades. He grabbed his helmet from the dresser, and he was ready for the day. In the dining compartment, his mother and father had finished breakfast. Their voices drifted to him as he clattered down the ramp. A disturbed murmur. He paused to listen. What were they talking about? Had he done something wrong again? And then he caught it. Behind their voices was another voice, static and crackling pops, the all-system audio signal from Rigel 4. They had it turned up full blast. The dull thunder of the monitor's voice boomed loud. The war. Always the war. He sighed and stepped out into the dining compartment. "'Morning,' his father muttered. "'Good morning, dear,' his mother said absently. She sat with her head turned to one side, wrinkles of concentration webbing her forehead. Her thin lips were drawn together in a tight line of concern. His father had pushed his dirty dishes back and was smoking, elbows on the table, dark, hairy arms, bare and muscular. He was scowling, intent on the jumbled roar from the speaker above the sink. "'How is it going?' Tony asked. He slid into his chair and reached automatically for the Airstat grapefruit. "'Any news from Orion?' Neither of them answered. They didn't hear him. He began to eat his grapefruit. Outside, beyond the little metal plastic housing unit, sounds of activity grew. Shouts and muffled crashes as rural merchants and their trucks rumbled along the highway towards Carnet. The reddish daylight swelled. Beetlejuice was rising quietly and majestically. "'Nice day!' Tony said. No flux wind. I think I'll go down to the end quarter a while. We're building a neat spaceport. A model, of course. But we've been able to get enough material to lay out strips for... With a savage snarl, his father reached out and struck. The audio roar immediately died. I knew it. He got up and moved angrily away from the table. I told them it would happen. They shouldn't have moved so soon. Should have built up a Class A supply base first. "'Isn't our main fleet moving in from Bellatrix?' Tony's mother fluttered anxiously. "'According to last night's summary, the worst that could happen is Orion 9 and 10 will be dumped.' Joseph Rossi laughed harshly. "'The hell with last night's summary! They know as well as I do what's happening!' "'What's happening?' 
Tony echoed as he pushed aside his grapefruit and began to ladle out dry cereal. Are we losing the battle? Yes, his father's lips twisted. Earthmen losing to... to beetles. I told them, but they couldn't wait. My God, there's ten good years left in this system. Why'd they have to push on? Everybody knew Orion would be tough. The whole damn beetle fleet strung out around here, waiting for us. And we have to barge right in. But nobody ever thought beetles would fight, Leah Rossi protested mildly. Everybody thought they'd just fire a few blasts and then... They have to fight. Orion's the last jump off. If they don't fight here, where the hell can they fight? Rossi swore savagely. Of course they're fighting. We have all their planets except the inner Orion string. Not that they're worth much, but... It's the principle of the thing. If we'd built up strong supply bases, we could have broken up the beetle fleet and really clobbered it. Don't say beetle, Tony murmured as he finished his cereal. They're pas udedi, same as here. The word beetle comes from beetle juice, an Arabian word we invented ourselves. What are you, a goddamn beetle lover? Joe, Leah snapped, for heaven's sake. Rosie moved towards the door. If I were ten years younger, I'd be out there. I'd really show those shiny-shelled insects what the hell they're up against. Them and their junky, beat-up old hulks. Converted freighters! His eyes blazed. When I think of them shooting down Terran cruisers with our boys in them... Orion's their system, Tony murmured. Their system? When the hell did you get to be an authority on space law? Why, I oughta... He broke off, choked with rage. My own kid, he muttered. One more crack out of you today, and I'll hang one on you you'll feel the rest of the week. Tony pushed his chair back. I won't be around here today. I'm going to Carnet with my EEP. Yeah, to play with beetles. Tony said nothing. He was already sliding his helmet in place and snapping the clamps tight. As he pushed through the back door into the lock membrane, he unscrewed his oxygen tap and set the tank filter into action. An automatic response conditioned by a lifetime spent on a colony planet in an alien system. A faint flux wind caught at him and swept yellow-red dust around his boots. Sunlight glittered from the metal roof of his family's housing unit, one of endless rows of squat boxes set in the sandy slope, protected by the line of ore-refining installations against the horizon. He made an impatient signal, and from the storage shed his EEP came gliding out, catching the sunlight on its chrome trim. "'We're going down into Carnet,' Tony said, unconsciously slipping into the Pas dialect. Hurry up! The EEP took up its position behind him, and he started briskly down the slope, over the shifting sand, towards the road. There were quite a few traders out today. It was a good day for the market. Only a fourth of the year was fit for travel. Beetlejuice was an erratic and undependable sun, not at all like Sol, according to the edutapes, fed to Tony four hours a day, six days a week. He had never seen Sol himself. He reached the noisy road. Pas Udedi were everywhere, whole groups of them, their primitive combustion-driven trucks, battered and filthy, motors grinding protestingly. He waved at the trucks as they pushed past him. After a moment, one slowed down. It was piled with tis, bundled heaps of gray vegetables dried and prepared for the table, a staple of the Pas Udedi diet. Behind the wheel lounged a dark-faced elderly Pas, one arm over the open window, a rolled leaf between his lips. He was like all the other Pasudetti, lank and hard-shelled, encased in a brittle sheath in which he lived and died. "'You want a ride?' the Pas murmured. 
required protocol when an Earthman on foot was encountered. Is there room for my EEP? The Poss made a careless motion with his claw. It can run behind. Sardonic amusement touched his ugly old face. If it gets to Carnet, we'll sell it for scrap. We can use a few condensers and relay tubing. We're short on electric maintenance stuff. I know, Tony said solemnly as he climbed into the cabin of the truck. It's all been sent to the big repair base at Orion for your war fleet. Amusement vanished from the leathery face. Yes, the war fleet. He turned away and started up the truck again. In the back, Tony's EEP had scrambled up onto the load of Tiss and was gripping precariously with its magnetic lines. Tony noticed the Pasudetti's sudden change of expression, and he was puzzled. He started to speak to him, but now he noticed unusual quietness among the other Pas in the other trucks, behind and in front of his own. The war, of course. It had swept through this system a century ago. These people had been left behind. Now all eyes were on Orion, on the battle between the Terran Warfleet and the Pas Udedi collection of armed freighters. "'Is it true?' Tony asked carefully. "'That you're winning?' The elderly Pas grunted. "'We hear rumors.' Tony considered. "'My father says Terran went ahead too fast. He says we should have consolidated. We didn't assemble adequate supply bases. He used to be an officer when he was younger.' He was in the fleet for two years. The Pas was silent for a moment. It's true, he said at last, that when you're so far from home, supply is a great problem. We, on the other hand, don't have that. We have no distances to cover. Do you know anybody fighting? I have distant relatives. The answer was vague. The Pas obviously didn't want to talk about it. Have you ever seen your war fleet? Not as it exists now. When this system was defeated, most of our units were wiped out. Remnants limped to Orion and joined the Orion fleet. Your relatives were with the remnants? That's right. Then you were alive when this planet was taken? Why do you ask? The old pass quivered violently. What business is it of yours? Tony leaned out and watched the walls of the buildings of Carnet grow ahead of them. Carnet was an old city. It had stood thousands of years. The Pas Udedi civilization was stable. It had reached a certain point of technocratic development and then leveled off. The Pas had intersystem ships that carried people and freight between planets in the days before the Terran Confederation. They had combustion-driven cars, audiophones, a powered network of a magnetic type. Their plumbing was satisfactory and their medicine was highly advanced. They had art forms, emotional and exciting. They had a vague religion. "'Who do you think will win the battle?' Tony asked. "'I don't know.' With a sudden jerk, the old Pas brought the truck to a crashing halt. "'This is as far as I go. Please get out and take your EEP with you.' Tony faltered in surprise. "'But aren't you going no farther?' Tony pushed the door open. He was vaguely uneasy. There was a hard, fixed expression on the leathery face, and the old man's voice had a sharp edge he had never heard before. "'Thanks,' he murmured. He hopped down into the red dust and signaled his EEP. It released its magnetic lines, and instantly the truck started up with a roar, passing on inside the city. Tony watched it go, still dazed. The hot dust lapped at his ankles. 
he automatically moved his feet and slapped at his trousers. A truck honked, and his EEP quickly moved him from the road up to the level pedestrian ramp. Pasudeti in swarms moved by, endless lines of people hurrying into Carnet on their daily business. A massive public bus had stopped by the gate and was letting off passengers, male and female pas, and children. They laughed and shouted, the sounds of their voices blended with the low hum of the city. "'Going in?' a sharp Pasudeti voice sounded close behind him. "'Keep moving! You're blocking the ramp!' It was a young female, with a heavy armload clutched in her claws. Tony felt embarrassed. Female Pas had a certain telepathic ability, part of their sexual makeup. It was effective on Earthmen at close range. "'Here,' she said. "'Give me a hand.' Tony nodded his head, and the EEP accepted the female's heavy armload. "'I'm visiting the city,' Tony said, as they moved with the crowd towards the gates. "'I got a ride most of the way, but the driver let me off here. "'You're from the settlement.' "'Yes,' she eyed him critically. "'You've always lived here, haven't you? "'I was born here.' My family came here from Earth four years before I was born. My father was an officer in the fleet. He earned an emigration priority. So you have never seen your own planet. How old are you? Ten years. Terran. You shouldn't have asked the driver so many questions. They passed through the decontamination shield into the city. An information square loomed ahead. Pass men and women were packed around it. Moving chutes and transport cars rumbled everywhere. Buildings and ramps and open-air machinery. The city was sealed in a protective, dust-proof envelope. Tony unfastened his helmet and clipped it to his belt. The air was stale-smelling, artificial, but usable. "'Let me tell you something,' the young female said carefully as she strode along the foot-ramp besides Tony. "'I wonder if this is a good day for you to come in to Carnet.' I know you've been coming here regularly to play with your friends, but perhaps today you ought to stay at home, in your settlement. Why? Because today everybody is upset. I know, Tony said. My mother and father were upset. They were listening to the news from our base in the Rigel system. I don't mean your family. Other people are listening, too. These people here, my race— "'They're upset, all right,' Tony admitted. "'But I come here all the time. "'There's nobody to play with at the settlement. "'And anyhow, we're working on a project. "'A model spaceport.' "'That's right,' Tony was envious. "'I sure wish I was a telepath. "'It must be fun.' "'The female Pasudetti was silent. "'She was deep in thought. "'What would happen,' she asked, "'if your family left here and returned to Earth?' That couldn't happen. There's no room for us on Earth. Sea bombs destroyed most of Asia and North America back in the 20th century. Suppose you had to go back. Tony did not understand. But we can't. Habitable portions of Earth are overcrowded. Our main problem is finding places for Terrans to live in other systems, he added. And anyhow, I don't particularly want to go to Terra. I'm used to it here. All my friends are here. "'I'll take my packages,' the female said. "'I go this other way, down this third-level ramp.' Tony nodded to his EEP, and it lowered the bundles into the female's claws. She lingered a moment, trying to find the right words. "'Good luck,' she said. "'With what?' She smiled faintly, ironically. 
with your model spaceport. I hope you and your friends get to finish it. Oh, of course we'll finish it, Tony said, surprised. It's almost done. What does she mean? The Pasudetti woman hurried off before he could ask her. Tony was troubled and uncertain. More doubts filled him. After a moment he headed slowly into the lane that took him towards the residential section of the city, past the stores and factories, to the place where his friends lived. The group of Pas Udedi children eyed him silently as he approached. They had been playing in the shade of an immense hengalo, whose ancient branches drooped and swayed with the air currents pumped through the city. Now they sat unmoving. "'I didn't expect you today,' B. Prith said in an expressionless voice. Tony halted awkwardly, and his E.E.P. did the same. "'How are things?' he murmured. "'Fine. I got a ride part way.' "'Fine.' Tony squatted down in the shade. None of the past children stirred. They were small, not as large as Terran children. Their shells had not hardened, had not turned dark and opaque like horn. It gave them a soft, unformed appearance, but at the same time it lightened their load— they moved more easily than their elders. They could hop and skip around still. But they were not skipping right now. "'What's the matter?' Tony demanded. "'What's the matter with everybody?' No one answered. "'Where's the model?' he asked. "'Have you fellows been working on it?' After a moment, Lyrie nodded slightly. Tony felt dull anger rise up inside him. "'Say something! What's the matter? What are you all mad about?' "'Mad?' Beeprith echoed. We're not mad. Tony scratched aimlessly in the dust. He knew what it was. The war again. The battle going on near Orion. His anger burst up wildly. Forget the war. Everything was fine yesterday before the battle. Sure, Lyrie said. It was fine. Tony caught the edge to his voice. It happened a hundred years ago. It's not my fault. Sure, B. Prith said. This is my home, isn't it? Haven't I got as much right here as anybody else? I was born here. Sure, Lyrie said tonelessly. Tony appealed to them helplessly. Do you have to act this way? You didn't act this way yesterday. I was here yesterday. All of us were here yesterday. What, What's happened since yesterday? The battle, B. Prith said. What difference does that make? Why does that change everything? There's always war. There have been battles all the time, as long as I can remember. What's the difference about this? B. Prith broke apart a clump of dirt with his strong claws. After a moment, he tossed it away and got slowly to his feet. Well, he said, thoughtfully, according to our radio relay, it looks as if our fleet is going to win this time. Yes, Tony agreed, not understanding. My father says we didn't build up adequate supply bases. We'll probably have to fall back to... And then the impact hit him. You mean for the first time in a hundred years? Yes, Lyrie said, also getting up. The others got up, too. They moved away from Tony, towards the nearby house. We're winning. The Terran flank was turned half an hour ago. Your right wing has folded completely. Tony was stunned. And it matters? It matters to all of you? Matters? B. Prith halted, suddenly blazing out in fury. Sure it matters. For the first time in a century, the first time in our lives we're beating you. 
We have you on the run. You, he choked out the words, almost spat it out. You white grubs. They disappeared into the house. Tony sat gazing stupidly down at the ground, his hands still moving aimlessly. He had heard the words before, seen it scrolled on walls and in the dust near the settlement. White grubs, the past term of derision for Terrans, because of their softness, their whiteness, lack of hard shells, pulpy, doughy skin, but, but they never dared say it out loud before, to an Earthman's face. Beside him, his EEP stirred restlessly. Its intricate radio mechanism sensed the hostile atmosphere. Automatic relays were sliding into place. Circuits were opening and closing. It's all right, Tony murmured, getting up slowly. Maybe we'd better go back. He moved unsteadily towards the ramp, completely shaken. The EEP walked calmly ahead, its metal face blank and confident, feeling nothing, saying nothing. Tony's thoughts were a wild turmoil. He shook his head, but the crazy spinning kept up. He couldn't make his mind slow down, lock in place. Wait a minute, a voice said, B. Prith's voice, from the open doorway, cold and withdrawn, almost unfamiliar. What do you want? B. Prith came towards him, claws behind his back in the formal Pasudeti posture used between total strangers. You shouldn't have come here today. I know, Tony said. B. Prith got out a bit of tiss stock and began to roll it into a tube. He pretended to concentrate on it. Look, he said, you said you have a right here, but you don't. I... Tony murmured. Do you understand why not? You said it's not your fault. I guess not. But it's not my fault either. Maybe it's nobody's fault. I've known you a long time. Five years, Terran. B. Prith twisted the stock up and tossed it away. Yesterday, we played together. We worked on the spaceport, but we can't play today. My family said to tell you not to come here any more. He hesitated and did not look Tony in the face. I was going to tell you anyhow before they said anything. Oh, Tony said. Everything that's happened today, the battle, our fleet stand, we didn't know. We didn't dare hope. You see, a century of running, first this system, then the Rigel system, all the planets, then the other Orion stars. We fought here and there scattered fights. Those that got away joined up. We supplied the base at Orion. You people didn't know. But there was no hope. At least nobody thought there was. He was silent a moment. Funny, he said. What happens when your back's to the wall and there isn't any further place to go? Then you have to fight. If our supply bases, Tony began thickly, but B. Prith cut him off savagely. Your supply bases. Don't you understand? We're beating you. Now you'll have to get out. All you white grubs. Out of our system. Tony's EEP moved forward ominously. B. Prith saw it. He bent down, snatched up a rock, and hurled it straight at the EEP. The rock clanged off the metal hull and bounced harmlessly away. B. Prith snatched up another rock. Lyrie and the others came out of the house. An adult pass loomed up behind them. 
Everything was happening too fast. More rocks crashed against the EEP. One struck Tony on the arm. Get out! Beeprith screamed. Don't come back! This is our planet! His claws snatched at Tony. We'll tear you to pieces if you... Tony smashed him in the chest. The soft shell gave like rubber, and the pas stumbled back. He wobbled and fell over, gasping and screeching. Beetle! Tony breathed hoarsely. Suddenly he was terrified. A crowd of Pasudeti was forming rapidly. They surged on all sides, hostile faces, dark and angry, a rising thunder of rage. More stones showered. Some struck the EEP. Others fell around Tony, near his boots. One whizzed past his face. Quickly, he slid his helmet in place. He was scared. He knew his EEP's E-signal had already gone out, but it would be minutes before a ship could come. Besides, there were other Earthmen in the city to be taken care of. There were Earthmen all over the planet, in all the cities, on all the 23 Beetlejuice planets, on the 14 Rigel planets, on the other Orion planets. We have to get out of here, he muttered to the EEP. Do something. A stone hit him on the helmet. The plastic cracked. Air leaked out, and then the auto seal filmed over. More stones were falling. The pos swarmed close. A yelling, seething mass of black-sheathed creatures. He could smell them, the acrid body odor of insects, hear their claws snap, feel their weight. The EEP threw its heat beam on. The beam shifted in a wide band towards the crowd of Pasudeti. Crude hand weapons appeared. A clatter of bullets burst around Tony. They were firing at the EEP. He was dimly aware of the metal body beside him. A shuddering crash. The EEP was toppled over. The crowd poured over it. The metal hull was lost from sight. Like a demented animal, the crowd tore at the struggling EEP. A few of them smashed in its head. Others tore off struts and shiny arm sections. The EEP ceased struggling. The crowd moved away, panting and clutching jagged remains. They saw Tony. As the first line of them reached for him, the protective envelope high above them shattered. A Terran scout ship thundered down, heat beam screaming. The crowd scattered in confusion, some firing, some throwing stones, others leaping for safety. Tony picked himself up and made his way unsteadily towards the spot where the scout was landing. I'm sorry, Joe Rossi said gently as he touched his son on the shoulder. I shouldn't have let you go down there today. I should have known. Tony sat hunched over in the big plastic easy chair. He rocked back and forth, face pale with shock. The scout ship that had rescued him had immediately headed back towards Carnet. There were other Earthmen to bring out besides this first load. The boy said nothing. His mind was blank. He still heard the roar of the crowd, felt its hate, a century of pent-up fury and resentment. The memory drove out everything else. It was all around him, even now, and the sight of the floundering EEP the metallic ripping sound as its arms and legs were torn off and carried away. His mother dabbed at his cuts and scratches with antiseptic. Joe Rossi shakily lit a cigarette and said, If your EEP hadn't been along, they'd have killed you. Beetles, he shrugged. I never should have let you go down there. All this time. They might have done it any time, any day, knifed you, cut you open with their filthy goddamn claws. Below the settlement, the reddish-yellow sunlight glinted on gun barrels. Already, dull booms echoed against the crumbling hills. The defensive ring was going into action. Black shapes darted and scurried up the side of the slope. Black patches moved out from Carnet, towards the Terran settlement, across the dividing line the Confederation surveyors had set up a century ago.
Carnet was a bubbling pot of activity. The whole city rumbled with feverish excitement. Tony raised his head. They... they turned our flank? Yeah. Joe Rossi stubbed out his cigarette. They sure did. That was at one o'clock. At two, they drove a wedge right through the center of our line. Split the fleet in half. Broke it up. Sent it running. Picked us off one by one as we fell back. Christ, they're like maniacs. Now that they've got the scent, the taste of our blood... But it's getting better, Leah fluttered. Our main fleet units are beginning to appear. We'll get them, Joe muttered. It'll take a while, but by God, we'll wipe them out. Every last one of them. If it takes a thousand years. We'll follow every last ship down. We'll get them all. His voice rose in a frenzy. Beetles! Goddamn insects! When I think of them trying to hurt my kid with their filthy black claws. If you were younger, you'd be in the line, Leah said. It's not your fault. You're too old. The heart strain's too great. You did your job. They can't let an older person take chances. It's not your fault. Joe clenched his fists. I feel so futile. If only there was something I could do. The fleet will take care of them, Leah said soothingly. You said so yourself. They'll hunt every one of them down, destroy them all. There's nothing to worry about. Joe sagged miserably. It's no use. Let's cut it out. Let's stop kidding ourselves. What do you mean? Face it. We're not going to win. Not this time. We went too far. Our time's come. There was silence. Tony sat up a little. When did you know? I've known a long time. I found out today. I didn't understand it first. This is stolen ground. I was born here, but it's stolen ground. Yeah, it's stolen. It doesn't belong to us. We're here because we're stronger. But now we're not stronger. We're being beaten. They know Terrans can be licked, like anybody else. Joe Rossi's face was gray and flabby. We took their planets away from them. Now they're taking them back. It'll be a while, of course. We'll retreat slowly. It'll be another five centuries going back. There's a lot of systems between here and Seoul. Tony shook his head, still uncomprehending. Even Lyrie and Beeprith, all of them, waiting for their time to come, for us to lose and go away again, where we came from. Joe Rossi paced back and forth. Yeah, we'll be retreating from now on, giving ground instead of taking it. It'll be like this today, losing fights, draws, stalemates, and worse. He raised his feverish eyes towards the ceiling of the little metal housing unit, face wild with passion and misery. But by God, we'll give them a run for their money, all the way back, every inch. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hello, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Evan. We're going to talk about Tony and the Beatles by Philip K. Dick. Uh, first published in Orbit, I think. I think that was the first publication. Orbit, uh, December 1953. A very uh, short-lived magazine. Uh, one of the early... I think it was one of the early uh, clearances I did. And uh, it is very successful in its rebirth. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm wholly responsible for that, but uh, I am very happy about it. There's a comic book version, um, but I don't read comics that are not uh, not in my hand, so I didn't I didn't buy it. 
It's only digital, I think. Anyways, um, uh, two things to start. One is, um, uh, I want to know if, uh, Evan, you can tell me what BIPOC stands for. B-I-P-O-C. B-I-P-O-C. It's some new term for, uh, people of color like used to be people of color and now i've been seeing bipoc show up which paul you're not something allowed to look similar, but i don't know the acronym I, it's I kinda, black indigenous yeah. and people of color okay yeah. that's a uh, very countryist I, I, of you I, I didn't understand why people <laughs> of color wasn't enough yes um because that already includes indigenous people. in canada it's more common to use i b p o c um, because indigenous people are a bigger percentage of yeah. the population. Um, and who gets to be included in this list of, cause we get the, you know, we've got the alternative, uh, LGBTQ 2S plus. I think that's the entire list at the moment. Um, 2S standing for two spirited. Um, and the plus for anybody who isn't caught by one of the, Previous ones. Who gets to be included in the in the uh, IBPOC or BIPOC? Well, you see, there's a council that meets every <laughs> underneath the sewers of New York City who decides who gets to be in there. <laughs> nice one, Paul. Good deflection. Uh, <laughs> um, I want to know if I get to be included. Well, well, what? Do, well, it's. Okay, more seriously, it's a matter of people who plausibly can self-identify as one of these groups. I see. So if if you're a black person, your parents were black, you grew up in the United States, um, your ancestors were enslaved, um, you get to be included under the B, I guess. It doesn't even matter if your ancestors yeah. were enslaved. That, yeah, that, 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 that has nothing to well, do with Well, no, I thought there was a difference between uh, black and... Oh, yeah, yeah. So I guess it would be um, African-American is is yeah, slaves. In the U.S., it doesn't have to be both parents, of course. Right, right. But like okay. in South yeah, Africa, yeah. black is, yeah, is like... In color, it has a different meaning. Yes, yes. I think in New Orleans, racial, the... You know, racial categories are more complex than the rest of the U.S. So the one, the one I'm I'm really thinking of that's um, is like the most obvious is uh, Latinx. Um, so I looked at the numbers. Uh, I just did a search, to find out about it, and um, apparently, like uh, only about twenty five percent of the Latinx community is aware of the term Latinx, and of that percentage, only like, I think it was about 5% use it. So, yeah. uh, my, my kind of idea here is that this is, it's in this story, right? Where Tony's dad, um, says, don't, he, he calls them Beatles and the son corrects him and says, don't call them Beatles. Beatles are for Beetlejuice. That's our word. Um, and he yeah. says, you beetle lover. To his own son, and yeah. uh, and Tony never says Beatles until the end. Um, he always says uh, Pasudetti, which is the name of the Pasudetti from the Pasudetti's point of view, right? But uh, I thought that was really interesting 
this story is very, um, very different from a lot of Philip K. Dick stories. And yet, you know, there's similar themes, but there's a fascinating, um, thing about it. You know, if you go to Google, not Google, uh, Goodreads and you look at the reviews and the scores and he, or even the Philip K. Dick fan site where they <laughs> rate things out of cues or I don't really understand their rating system there. Um, yeah, it gives three O's with a little line dancing over it. <laughs> what does that mean? I don't know. For f- I will. <laughs> three O's instead of four O's or five O's. So th- this thing tends to get about three and a half stars on, on Goodreads. And I you know I'm, I'm not a fan of the idea of rating things out of stars. Um, but I could say, you know, this is one of my favorite stories or this is one of my least favorite stories. I would say this is one of the most different Philip K. Dick stories from other Philip K. Dick stories there is. But I, I don't think, uh, trying to give it a grade like the uh, literary agency that gave it a G or G plus. <laughs> as opposed to an A or an excellent or whatever their score system is. How did you, is this, I'm assuming this is your first time on this story, Paul. This is the, yeah, I had not read the story before. How would you uh, classify it if you were to do so? Classify? Uh, the, 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 or how do you feel about so, it is, is another okay, way of okay, putting it. Okay. So, what this story reminded me of, I don't know if you've read it. There, the late Mike Resnick did a whole cycle of stories of a future history of man spreading out into the galaxy called Birthright, the Book of Man. No, I haven't read Birthright, but I've read uh, other Mike Resnicks, and I can see some resonance. I, I, and in the course of Birthright, man expands, takes over other civilizations, grows as a galactic empire. And then things start to go wrong and they start having to get pushed back. And there's lots of tension as the intransigence of man to adapt to the new situation basically dooms humanity to collapse back on itself. And these former enslaved and uh, subjugated peoples basically get their comeuppance. And that's what this story reminded me of. It reminded me of that portion of Birthright where... Man, this is uh, this is like at that teetering point where okay, man's got go as far as they're going to get in this expansion, and now they're going to get pushed back because we because the, the son himself says, even Lyra and Birth, all of them waiting for the to come for us to lose and go away again where we came from, and that reminded me of the back half of a birthright as as man just gets the galactic empire shrinks and shrinks until man is finally in that in the is basically dealt with completely and then there's the far future coda uh, coda which is not in birthright itself um seven views of old of gorge where we find that where we find which is basically a story of aliens have landed on earth man is extinct and they basically study old of gorge we know where homo mm-hmm. habilis and whatnot came from and the end of that story is they see some quasi descendants of man living in the gorge basically trying to bootstrap themselves back up to sentience and the last <laughs> line it says it's not over like yeah man's coming back oh crap <laughs> so that's what this kind of reminds me of that back half of birthright of man like i man assume that that's a positive bad things 
a positive thing. Yeah, 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 so you yeah, like I, this I, story. I, I do I do like the story because it reminded remind me of Birthright and I like Birthright a lot. I mean it's not a happy story. I mean this I mean mankind in this story are assholes, part of my language. And I'm I'm, I'm I'm I I hesitate to say they're getting what they deserve, but you know, this this story is all about how man's imperialism is going to bite in on itself and Maybe it was a narrative. What I kept hearing and thinking of from a historical term is I kept thinking of India because maybe the narrator and the, the way he vocalized aliens, I kept thinking about the, how India rose up against the British. Mm. And there's there's a couple of historical, there's a couple ways you can go at this in the historical context. Yes. The most obvious is decolonization because this kind yeah. of stuff actually did happen where people of European descent, some people like in the settler place, you know, settler societies like Kenya you mm-hmm. know, and India had plenty of Rhodesia. people were raised in India, yeah. right? Uh, Indochina had some, Indonesia is a big one, right? Where these people were expelled, mm-hmm. um, yeah. who had lived there their whole life, right? Born there. But yeah. I was thinking even more like there's a Lebensraum kind of narrative here too, because the reason Earth, and I didn't notice it the first time I, I read it, but mm-hmm. Earth expands because it sort of needed to. It was like space, yeah, they mentioned that. You can't live on Earth anymore. Some kind of war. I don't know if it was a war with the Beatles. They probably killed themselves is what I think. They yeah. probably nuked themselves. And so, and then if you see how far they spread, it's at, at the end. 23 planets in Beetlejuice have settlers, 14 in the Rigel, and then other Orion planets. So, you know, dozens of planets have been colonized. Dozens of planets. And so this is a huge crisis. It may take hundreds of years, as the guy says at the end, but it's a huge crisis for, for Earth, this defeat. So, um, but this idea of, like, we, we must move out just to survive, right? That's something that's in, that theme is in a lot of Dick's novels. So I kind of see this as one of the Dick's frontier stories that he wrote mm-hmm. a lot of in the 50s, like The Variable Man and Mr. Spaceship and... Some of his early novels, like uh, the world Jones made, um, not yeah, the world Jones made, um, but it comes up again and again in his early stories of of this expansion of humanity, right? And then there's right, some we kind see, of, we, right, tend, there's something always... getting in the way of that expansion, but we've never seen it in this intimate way in, in his stories before. And, and, and that's intimate relationship between this boy and his, you know, what he thought were friends. He's um, community. It's, it's so in this sense, it's very unique. It's part of a larger genre of stories that Dick was writing at the mm-hmm. time, but he never quite goes at it this way. It's, right, or, or, it's always or from a different point to, of view. Or to this, or to this angle, is that the fact that this expansion is going to fail and is going to be returned back? Usually, I mean, I'm thinking of again because I always think of the novel I, um, Time Out of Joint, where that where it's clear and that's an early Dick novel, and clear at the end, mm-hmm. so yeah, the moon and space is our future. I mean, the, the Dick stories and novels you cite are basically a positive. It's like, yes, we must go out to mankind's destinies out in the stars, as Arthur C. Clarke said for an ad for Omni magazine. And here it's like, we're, 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 we're trying we're going to have to return backwards. It may take a long while. We're just going to get defeats and draws and reverses, but we're getting, we're getting pushed back to where we started from. It's a very different message than any folk could take. I've read in that regard. But one thing I would like to point out about this, though, is it doesn't seem inevitable, this doom that, like, uh, what's his name? Joseph. Joseph Rosie's, uh, Malayan doom at the end. 
right? It's one battle, right? And this really excites the Beatles, and they think the tide has turned, but they, they really they, don't. Well, they're evacuating the planet. Or at least yeah. they're refortifying, right? Well, they were evacuating the city, right? Yeah. The beetle riots and mobs. I just don't know if, if <laughs> they're, predicting, I, 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 they're kind I, I, of being I mean, psycho historians here and, and you know, predicting what's going to happen. Yeah, I, 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 mean, I, mean, I want to road. read. Uh, let me read this. Joe sag miserably. It's no use. Let's cut it out. Let's stop kidding ourselves. What do you mean? Face it. We're not going to win. Not this time. We went too far. Our time's come. There was silence. Tony Sapolo, when did you know? I've known for a long, I've known a long time. Found it today. I didn't understand it for, this is stolen ground. I was born here, but this is stolen ground. Right. And, and you don't, yeah. you don't keep, get the steep stolen ground forever. So <laughs> I do. I, I don't do know see. about that, Paul. I mean. No, you get to keep it forever. I, I'm on a, or I'm, I'm in China now, but. Yeah, so I'm thinking in the long but, term. In the long term, <laughs> you don't get to keep it forever. That's there is no forever in the long term. It might be a long. So I, I'm trying to understand, like, what this is. Uh, first, first, I want to read the um, the uh, the readers at the SMLA agency, um, uh, what their opinions were. Uh, Tony and the Beatles, seeing how it is, quote-unquote, pedestrian, rather corny stuff pretending to be impressive, was sent to the, quote-unquote, lower markets. Um, so, like, were they going to get paid less? Because it's not a great story. Now, the thing is, is I can understand uh, classifying it as not your favorite, right? If you start uh, making a list of your favorite Philip K. Dick stories, I've got a lot of them. And, uh, I, if you, you know, put a gun to my head and, or worse to my knee and said, Hey, I'm going to shoot your kneecap off. If you don't uh, make a list of Philip K. Dick stories, uh, ranked from favorites to uh, least favorites, I would, I would start making that list because I want to keep my kneecap. Right? Um, but I don't think that this is corny. I think it's well, I also uh, think earnest. Phil Dick, there's a lot of like people kind of come at Philip Dick, they, they read a little bit about it, and there's an assumption like certain works are the greats and other things Absolutely. are... Absolutely, like, you know, like Lovecraft journey, or whatever. German days or something, and they kind of get just, just uh, but get ignored. My, I think it's true of a lot of the stories and a lot of the early novels. They just get considered that was like the trash. Absolutely. On. When I see people's and reviews... They don't get the respect they deserve, I really believe. When I, when I see people's reviews like this, pedestrian, rather corny stuff, pretending to be impressive, what I gather from that is they don't understand it, and so that they're not ranking it higher. So the reason uh, the reason I, I say stuff like that is because that's how I think, right? I'm seeing my own reaction to things and think, why does this suck? Or why is this okay? Or why is this awesome? And so, for example, there's a story I've avoided doing a show on, and I think we should do it next um, on the Philip K. Dick reading, um, and that's uh, The Crystal Crypt. I, I it's a very strange story. It's, it's, it's set on Mars. It's about some, it's actually kind of similar to this. It's about some humans leaving Mars, um, after the Martians who are also human, um, are about to go to war with the humans from Earth. And in the evacuation, some of the human sp uh, Earth spies steal a city. Um, that's weird. And sort of what the title comes from, 
But the really weird part, part is there's black clad lighters. And lighters is a German, uh, Nazi rank. Why is that in this story? Because Philip K. Dick is doing something. He's embracing something he knows about and turning it into a science fiction story. So I, I just want to point out that uh, our hero in this story, if he is a hero, to uh, Tony, um, what's his last name? Rossi. Rossi. So he's Italian, right? Tony, uh, short for Anthony, <laughs> and it's an Italian name, and so is Rossi, right? You put those two things together and you say, that's an Italian boy. Um, now, I want to point out how many times in other Philip K. Dick stories and novels, Italians play a role. Um, let's, let's, let's make a little list, okay? Uh, so his first published story, uh, called Rug, uh, about, uh, a dog that barks at some garbage men, uh, <laughs> is, uh, has a family called the Cardosis. So they're Italian. And it was based on a real house and a real dog in his neighborhood in Berkeley. Um, in uh, his most famous novel, The Man in the High Castle, yeah. we don't spend most of our time with uh, the Nazis. We spend most of our, or even the Japanese, really. We spend uh, uh, about half of the time with an Italian named Joe Cinadella. Um, was the Invasion of Earth novel where they've got a, a, the outer Superman uh, are trying to convince the leader of Earth. Who's now wait a, for last year. Yeah, now wait for last year, right? Mole, Molinari. Molinari, right. So why is it, Philip K. Uh, there's actually lots more, and I'm I'm just like thinking of a few of them, right? Uh, why is Philip K. Dick always on about the Italians? I'm like, hmm, I don't know the answer. Like, I don't, I, I didn't read a letter where he said, my best friend was Italian. Right. But, <laughs> but what I, but what I can say is, um, reading a lot of Philip K. Dick in the newspaper during World War II, um, and seeing what was going on in those newspapers besides his stories, um, thinking about the Japs, thinking about, uh, the Victory Gardens, thinking about the fact that Philip K. Dick's last name is German during World War II, right? Uh, thinking about his father being a World War I uh, soldier. Um, and we don't know almost anything about Philip K. Dick's father other than he once showed his son, a, a, or maybe it, it was just in his house. He had a gas mask from World War I in his house. Um, his father sort of disappears out of the story, right, almost immediately. Um, but I also remember growing up, uh, and being in school and everybody knows what your name is. They know your first name, their last name, and they're willing to make fun of it. Dick is a pretty funny name, right? <laughs> um, um, it's a pretty funny name. I mean, people make jokes about it all the time. Um, now maybe they don't know that it's German, but it's possible. It's also possible. There was another kid who was his best friend who he walked down the street with, uh, who was Italian. But what I'm wondering here is where this story is really set because Philip K. Dick never lived outside the United States except, you know, Vancouver for a brief period of time, right? He was never, uh, decolonized. But he was reading about all sorts of things like their enemies, uh, what was it in the story? It's their side being turned, right? 
they're trying to do double envelopment and, and they, oh, their flank was turned, right? And oh, they didn't do this. So if you, if you know that he was writing in the newspapers, um, and seeing his story in print there, he's also flipping through the newspaper and seeing all these headlines like Japanese tank gives piggy, uh, American tank gives piggyback ride to Japanese or nip tank, right? And I'm like, oh God, <laughs> you turn the next page and here's a list of, of the campaigns going on in this place in the Pacific and, and he's growing up during the war and he's thinking very sensitively about all of these places on these maps that he's never been to. And, you know, during the Italian campaign, right, which is not well known compared to D-Day, um, they're going at the, they start in Sicily and they work their way up, right? And at some point during the, the transition, they go from being, uh, defenders to allies. The Italians change sides, right? It's because the leadership changes. Now today, Mussolini. Yeah. yeah, well, first they depose him and put him in a, in a, uh, an Alp, uh, yeah, imprisonment. He tries to rescue. He does, he does rescue him. And then, uh, Hitler promptly puts him on a plane back to Italy where he's promptly hanged or hung. Um, again, the hanging stranger, right? So there's this idea of, of that, uh, invasion and being greeted as liberators, right? As, as they, because you know, Italy's a different place than, you know, invading Germany. Um, they were not super enthusiastic, uh, compared to the Nazis, and that's why the Nazis had to reinforce them. So, getting in there, I don't know, I don't know what Philip K. Dick is doing, but I just want to make an analogy. So, um, I, tr- I tried to find this out. It's very hard to find out, but the number of military bases, United States military bases still in Italy today, it's between three uh, and a hundred. Um, now, the hundred number is probably way too high, and the three numbers way too low. I think the most accurate number I got is seven. Um, now, if you're growing up on a military base in, you know, in, you know, American military base in Italy, uh, you go to an Italian school or you go to a school that's for kids of, you know, military students, but you still live all around these Italians. And what's so cool about this story is that's actually what we see. He wakes up in the morning. He puts on his spacesuit. He has bre- oh, he, he, he gets dressed. He has breakfast with his parents who are arguing about what's going on in the radio or the TV, right? And he says, I'm going out to play. <laughs> and he only has f- a school four hours a week, which is online, which is kind of weird. Oh no, four hours a day, six days a week. It's online. He goes out to play. Um, he's a free range kid, right? Um, he gets a mandatory lift from a, a beetle or a pasudetti. Um, we don't want to use the slur, the B word. Um, he gets a ride because humans automatically get rides, right? They have to be stopped for. If you see a boy walking down the street and he's human, you have to give him a ride. And this boy is very polite. So he says, please and thank you. Um, and he learns a little bit from the guy. And then the guy is so frustrated with the boy, he lies and says, this is as far as I can take you. He gets on the bus. A attractive female who's telepathic uh, uh, says, uh, I know she actually knows everything that happened in the previous conversation. Um, 
he makes his robot carry her bag, or rather, the robot automatically carries his bag. Um, the robot previously had to ride behind on the truck heading into town, right? We get to town. His friends reject him, say, you suck. We hate you. Only reason we ever played <laughs> with you is because you're a human and we're forced to play with you. Fuck you. Right? Poor little guys like, oh, That's what the hell? How it goes, but Pretty yeah. much how it goes, right? I mean, the dialogue's slightly different. Um, and then they start throwing rocks at him. His spacesuit pops a hole. Um, the planet is not suitable for human life, right? Um, he can't walk around without a helmet. Pops a hole and it, it has a recovery mode. Um, they start throwing rocks at his EEP, EEP, which is a robot dog, we think, right? Um, and his robot dog starts, uh, shooting a heat ray, right? Now, I, I believe this to be like basically a, a death ray. Um, the spaceship, uh, as, as they tear his robot apart, a spaceship comes down, a uh, human spaceship comes down and rescues him. It's also firing heat rays. Um, presumably, we don't see any blood at all, right? Tony's visor seems to fog up or something. Um, we don't, or whatever the equivalent of, uh, Pasudetti blood is. Um, we don't see any of that. Um, and then we get this sequence where the dad says, yeah, I guess I probably shouldn't have let you out, out today. Uh, but yeah, we're on the run now. So that's a really weird story. So when somebody says it's uh, pedestrian, rather corny stuff, pretending to be impressive, what yeah, I get from that, <laughs> what I get from that is this person doesn't understand anything that's going on. Like they read the words and they just didn't, they just bounced off, right? Now, one of the things I noticed in one of my readings is how amazing the, the, uh, how amazing the amount of like, planetary um world building goes on here like that we've got the flux winds and we get the color the the fact that the sands are uh building up or he's basically trudging through sands um all the uh pasudetti equipment is like old it's almost like cuba right and even their spaceships are all freighters that have been changed right they have an empire right, yeah. They have an empire yeah, I mean, they, they, that is not a military empire. A it's bit. fascinating, right? This is a really amazing world. And he uses, tells it from a, the point of view of somebody who is least able to tell us about it, almost. Right? Except from a very narrow slice. And, and, they, they, and that makes that's the amazing. story more effective. I mean, if you, had, if you had the father as the main character, the story wouldn't quite have the punch it as, as having this 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 poor kid Tony as as our main character. The father threatens to, to beat, beat his son at one point. Well, and that's, a, that's I think, the re- one of the reasons I wanted to do this one is compared to our last, uh, there was like that threat from the parents, right? Um, where, what was the last one called? Um, oh, the uh, bubbles. No, clouds. Oh, yeah. Martians, Martians come in clouds, Martians right? Clouds. Where the threat, the threat is to the external colonizers. Some a Martians who want to come to Earth and just like, can we please live on yeah, little metal discs in the story. middle of the yeah. oceans? Can we please do that? And what do they do? They hunt them down, burn them alive and say, well, they seem to be dying out. I guess we won't have to deal with this any longer. But the, the monsters 
in the story are the humans, right? And the boy is one of these mon- uh, turned into one of these monsters. He's eleven in that story. He's ten in this story. This is a very sensitive kid, right? He's reading. <laughs> we know he's reading the newspaper because his stories are published there. He's, he has to cut out the credit so he can do something with it and get a, I don't know, notebook or whatever. <laughs> however, he's, however, he's getting paid in credits. He's going to take those credits out and he's going to use them. So he has to flip through the newspaper. He has to know that these things are going on. Not to mention the fact everybody would know what they're, you know, World War II's raging. His sensitivity level is through the roof. And that's why we see so many telepathic people. It's not because he, he really believed in telepathy like, uh, I, I don't think he really believed in telepathy in the way that, uh, uh, John, John W. Campbell. Campbell was pushing, right? But he does have this sensitivity level that's just incredible. And yeah, the telepathy is a metaphor for being socially and psychologically sensitive to others, but also sensitive to like, like Tony Rossi, or uh, yeah, Tony Rossi is is insensitive to his parents' racism. In a certain point, right? Because he's had experience with all these Pasudati who are his friends, right? And right. he lives in this community. He knows about it. He's working on projects with them. The, some of the, some of the people are actually quite polite to him and, and in, indeed friendly, right? But especially the young people, they turn on a dime. So I just am thinking about like how this works, right? All of a sudden, you've got, you know, you're going to school, everything's fine, you've got this Japanese friend, uh, cause he was born in Berkeley just like you, and suddenly the next day Pearl Harbor happens. What happens now? You go out into the schoolyard and, you know, they haven't come and put him in concentration camps yet, but they're going to, and you know that, because you're not one of them, right? You're not Japanese, you didn't cause the, uh, but so, uh, what, what are the, some of the words that, they used to describe the stab in the back. That's not exactly the right word, right? They, there was some sort of unprovoked attack. There's all sorts of like high rhetoric for, for, uh, Pearl Harbor. But in any case, you suddenly are a participant in this hate, right? That's freaky. And I'm sure Philip K. Dick is reflecting upon it and thinking about it. And somebody pointed out, uh, I think it was in like a Twitter thread about this story. Um, it makes an interesting comparison to, uh, Ender's Game. Uh, I know, Paul, you've read Ender's Game, right? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, Evan, you probably haven't read it. Is that right? No. Yeah. Okay. So it got turned into a movie of no note. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it's been better. adapted to, audio uh, at least three times um including a full cast one um and it's a very i hadn't read it when you know it came out in the 80s but um i eventually did read it and i agree that it is a very powerful book and very interesting one of the things that it's similar to in this story is that it's a a war story told from the point of view of a boy um the boy goes to school he's bullied there other kids there are, they're all special kids somehow, right? They gifted in some way and, uh, they are 
tra- training to become super soldiers, uh, generals and admirals in a war against the buggers, right? Um, this is uh, sort of a response to Heinlein's Starship Troopers via, via Joe Haldeman's The Forever War, right? So it's mm-hmm. a continuum. But um, in the end of the novel, after it turns out that the uh, boy Ender, who's got a funny name, he's going to end the war, right? Um, has actually not been doing simulated war, but actual war against the buggers. He's just genocided a whole bunch of buggers. Turns out that this uh, uh, war was started by accident, that it was um, the humans' inability to recognize that the, that the buggers were like them, right? Um, and so at the end of the story, what do we get? We get that line, uh, this is stolen ground, right? Now... I know a little bit about Orson Scott Card. Never met the man. Maybe email or something. Um, but uh, he's a thoughtful guy. He's also a religious guy, um, and his religion says, you know, this land is ours. But he and you know, a lot of people don't like him because he's anti-gay. But that's part of his religion. He's not anti-gay. He's a homophobic asshole. Pardon my language. Well, I, I believe those mean the same thing. Except, no, except for the word yeah, asshole, I, right? I, I, I just wanted to, yeah, to, to not soft pedal. <laughs> it sounds a little soft pedal. I, I just want to. Well, no, I, he doesn't record. burn gay people. Like he doesn't like break into their houses and murder them. He is anti-gay in the sense that he is against them, right? He thinks it's wrong, and he it, he didn't come to that all on his own. That's through his religion, and which he takes seriously. I'm not a member of this religion. I think it's a mistake too. But um he's thinking uh, that's what most people uh who know I have about Mormon friends who are not Yeah. Catholic, do so. but do they take I, their I, religion I seriously? I don't, I don't buy the came through his religion excuse. That's 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 excusing and and uh, soft only. Pardon my part. So I'm sorry Jesse and Orson Scott Card presses some of my buttons because lots of my friends are gay and yeah. Of course. They, of course. They're in his crosshairs, so I'm sorry. I, I Yeah, but I, he's I, not I shooting anybody. Let's not overstate the case, right? He he it's he he doesn't like he he may lobby for uh, laws that prevent them getting married and stuff like that, but he isn't like violent. Right? All his crimes are crimes. All his um, uh, hate is nonviolent, and uh, the, I don't really, I, I don't, I don't really get too deep into that because it's not, this is not a story about uh, sexual preference at all or sexual need or anything like that. It's kind of the opposite. Although I think there's some sexual tension between <laughs> the uh, young, uh, the young uh, Pasudetti woman. And, uh, young Tony on the bus, she makes him carry her bags and talks to him about his feelings. So I thought that was kind of cute. Um, no. So, uh, why, why do I think this is important? It's because, you know, a lot of people like, for example, Catholicism, Paul, uh, what's the official policy on, uh, on homosexuality in, in Catholicism these days? It's hard to keep track. Um, um, the Pope hasn't said. Uh, I have to. I have to check 
from the Pope. It's hard to keep track. But I believe it's still considered a sin. Okay. So if you took your religion seriously um, and you were Catholic, you might have to deal with that, right? Now, I know a lot of people uh, who are Catholic, and some of them uh, sort of dodge it. And some people um, say, you know, uh, we're still evolving on that or something like that, right? There's all sorts of different ways of dealing with intellectual inconsistencies, especially when they're done from the outside. So I'm with Tony in this story from the beginning. But at the end, when he's being attacked, not for his his actions, but for his skin color or his species, right? That's really wrong. Now, when he says beetle instead of Paso Daddy, um, I don't, I don't think that's right. But on the other hand, uh, I can see why he would, um, feel hurt, right? Being physically assaulted. Um, yes, he had a privilege, privilege that was denied other Paso Daddies, right? All humans must be picked up and, uh, taken ar- around if they are hitchhiking. That's kind of a terrible law. Um, uh, imposed on them, no doubt, rather than, you know, imposed on themselves. The fact that these settlements and they live in communities, you know, outside of, you know, human settlements, it's, it's an occupying force. They're settlers, right? So when he says at the end, uh, I found out today, I didn't understand it first. This is stolen ground. I was born here, but it's stolen ground. And then the father says, yes, it's stolen. It doesn't belong to us. We're here because we're stronger, but now we're not stronger. We're being beaten, right? That the fact that um, he's saying it's stolen ground. Um, he said, "I understand. I didn't understand at first. This is stolen ground." He just grew up there, right? Now a lot of people deal with this today in the same way. Like um, around here, if you have a meeting of an elite. <laughs> bunch of people at a university and they're going to give a speech, a long, boring speech that we're going to fast forward through to get to the part where we care about, right? Um, they'll often start with introductions and saying how many degrees this person's got. But before they do that, they usually want to acknowledge that the place that they're in, the physical room, is on stolen ground, unceded territory, right? There's no treaty, they'll say. And I think that that's Fascinating. Yeah, the like, like, like the, but they the, ain't the, going the, away. There's, a, there's an NPR show that ends that ends here in Minnesota. Ends like and and the show is uh, on is is Bork, is a uh, on Dakota land. So yeah, so it's an right. acknowledgement of that. It's an acknowledgement, and we're not going away. Right? They they didn't say, you know what? I'm headed back to Europe, even though I wasn't born there. I was born in North Vancouver, right? Me. That land uh, has, there's a reserve right beside where I was born. Presumably that whole area was occupied by the same people, right? In fact, it wasn't occupied full time, but they definitely did their business there, right? So I'm not going back to Europe because I wasn't born there. I was born in North Vancouver. If I say this is stolen ground, that means I have to give it up. But there's no place for me to go. I'm a citizen of Canada. I could go to another part of Canada where the land was 
uh, stolen by treaty rather than unstolen by no treaty or stolen by no treaty. But there is no place to go. The humans here are occupying this planet because, we are told, the Earth is uninhabitable. Right, So they're going to just get displaced. I think that there's something deep inside this, like some story that really resonated inside Philo head. And we think about all the ships that come from Europe or Asia. And I was thinking a lot about... It's so weird because this story doesn't resonate in a particular way yet, but I think it will. I was oh. thinking about the Vietnam War. And if you remember the images of the of the of all the... Uh, loading up the aircraft carriers and there's no room so they push off perfectly good helicopters to make room for more people right and i guess this is seven, 1975 and they're just like store they're trying to get every every person who was a quote-unquote collaborator that's not my word but uh you know somebody who's gonna get persecuted or prosecuted for collaborating with the americans out and into the united states to safety right those people can't go back. I guess this is uh, sort of how the Cubans feel in southern Florida or whatever. So there's some sort of resonance going on there. And that's this is not a story that can be judged on a score out of five. Because that's not what it's... It's not trying to win a contest. It's trying to express a very, very specific kind of uh, concern. It's a very strange story. So... Uh, in comparing it to Ender's Game, which is at the end and in subsequent books about, possibly, about how do you reckon, reconcile the idea of your country and your community and the country you're born in being taken from people who lived here and genocided by your ancestors or somebody who look like your ancestors um, in order to take that land. You probably aren't going to feel good about it, but they ain't giving it back. That's really odd. That's why Philip K. Dick is such a weird writer, right? It's got, it's got a nice world building here, but all of it is in an effort to show a very specific kind of feeling. You, you, rem- you maybe rem- reminded me of a William Tenn story called Eastward Ho. Have you read it? Yeah, Jesse? that sounds familiar. I'm, 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 I'm going to guess that Evan has not. Yeah, no, it's, Evan's uh, not it, famously a, a science fiction guy. It's it's nineteen. It's a nineteen fifty eight story. It's set after a nuclear or or a societal collapse, anyway. And basically, the United States is fragmenting, and the American Indians are basically reclaiming mm-hmm. all of America and the main the main character goes to the to the capital of Trenton and, and Trenton New Jersey and and we and we see, you see throughout the story it's one of my favorite stories like so can almost quote it verbatim we, because because I mean it's so bad that the highway is basically like a gravel road and there's like a wooden sign saying Trenton this way and we find out that, that basically the United the the Native Americans are basically conquering the entire United States the South of the United States is the Confederacy and is a, a Confederacy, so basically it broke off at some point, but it too is under domination. So the main character basically rides out to the coast of New Jersey to get on a ship to go back to Europe because, as, as they point out, even Russia is having problems with their native peoples, basically the Tatars basically doing the same thing. So 
basically, yeah, the end of the story is, yeah, we're going to go back to where man can be, where people can be free again, that is to say <laughs> Europe. So it's kind of like, yeah. yeah are the Europeans going to be fine with all these foreigners coming to their country? What do you think? The story doesn't address that. I don't think that many people can because it's not even, there's not a lot of ships left to do it. But yeah, so it's kind of <laughs> like, it's, it's very much a decolonization story like this is, but from a different perspective and basically set here on Earth. I've always thought about that story and just how how sad that is because because it's like it's like uh, because in one, one line says in a number of hours your your country will no longer be in existence is like crap. That's well, really, that's that's really dark. dark. I I talk a lot about in my world history courses when I get to twentieth century history is is that this is a, that's the century of ethnic cleansing, right? You can find. Mm-hmm. You can like the Acadians or some group like that, um, and of course the genocide of Native Americans. But when we think of like modern ethnic cleansing, it's really the 20th century, right? It's the it's the century when these took place, right? The Holocaust yeah. or the ethnic cleansing of the Germans from Eastern Europe after the war, or Armenia. all the stuff that happened yeah. in the former Soviet Union, or you know the Pakistan India, you know. The, mm-hmm. the violence on the borders there, um, and these decolonization efforts, right, often led to eth- essentially a type of ethnic cleansing, right? Mm-hmm. Right. I think there was, I forget the details of it, but there's something like this happened, like in Zanzibar, where, right. you, know, you know, I think it was like the Arabs and the black Africans were kind of dividing up the land, and there was all kinds of tensions. And this comes out of, I mean, Part of it certainly is this, you know, the rights of indigenous people. But I don't know if that's on Dick's mind as much as like ethno nationalism is is really that's more the historical context, right? They literally like as a as a you know as a Japanese kid in in San Francisco, right? Your parents maybe are fishermen or whatever. Um, it doesn't really matter if you're on the west coast of North America. They physically come and ethnically cleanse you. They remove you from your home. They put you on a bus. Mm-hmm. They take you away from the coast. They seize all your assets and sell them, right? Mm-hmm. You're gone. Imagine, imagine in school, you're a kid now and some, you know, cop shows up and says, yep, John, little Johnny has to leave. He and his family are being shipped to Alberta or Saskatchewan <laughs> to a camp where there's walls. That prevents you from leaving, and if you try to get out, they machine gun you. Now, they try and treat you nicely while you're in there for the duration of the war. And this happened to, uh, you know, Germans in the United States and yeah. Italians, yeah. right? It, well, not just in the United States, but Germans in Europe. That's what I'm thinking about. Do, do any of you know how many Germans were essentially ethnically cleansed from Eastern Europe after the war? Yeah, there's a uh, fascinating story. You know, there's a. It's the, around 12 million people. It's and these weren't like Lebensraum settlers who took yeah. advantage of the war to move into like the former Soviet Union or Poland. The vast majority of these people were in. I mean, these were areas that were part of the German Empire for Prussia, you know, or, right? or, founded. Or, or, or just enclaves, these were German-speaking were areas big, for yeah, they're, hundreds they're, of they're, years. Yeah, there were big German enclaves in Russia for hundreds of years mm-hmm. that yeah. had that got basically purged after the war. There's a there's a story. This is happening all over the world in these decades. In yeah, the, in the 40s, 50s. It, it, there's a a whole bunch of Germans in England who are shipped all the way to Australia. You know, mm-hmm. dr- during the war, 
Um, it's called the Denera Boys. A crazy story, right? Like just uh, uh, somebody born or, you know, t- what they would call a dreamer or whatever, <laughs> three, three days old when they arrive in, in London. Um, they got a London accent. They have a London business, a London wife, and they're physically removed from their shops and taken all the way to the other side of the planet. I, I, I just had to Google it. In September 1940, 2,542 enemy aliens from Britain disembarked HMT Dunera in Melbourne and Sydney. Most were Jewish refugees who had fled Nazi persecution in Germany and Austria. They were interned in camps near Hay and Orange in New South Wales and Totori in Victoria. There's a movie about it. It's it's fascinating, right? What causes that? Well, it's hate, right? And now the thing is, is if you're a German uh, in the United States, um, you don't get the hate that you get as a Japanese because first of all, you can't tell just by looking at somebody if they're German. They don't wear a, a pickle helmet. <laughs> There's no Stahlhelm on their head. It's harder to tell. Yes. But now, even if you have their name, right? Philip doesn't sound like a very German name. Uh, it, it's sort of generic, right? And Dick doesn't I, I would, sound like a very German name. Unless you know. But but the pronunciation of my family's name changed during World War II. Right. It became Weimer instead of Weimer because, yeah, that was a thing. That, 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 That's right. And my father fought in World War II. So, yeah, so the pronunciation changed. But there's a ton of Germans in the United States that are going over to fight against Nazi Germany. And most of them, you know, most Germans were not put in camps. But more Italians were, right? In the United States, and it's it's, some, it's, some, it's yeah, that's based on it's based on hate, right? Racism, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think I've mentioned before in the show uh, the the George Takai story, where George Takai wound up in a internment camp in California, and mm-hmm. and I went I went to a science fiction convention where he was, and he wanted to talk about this book where he just wrote about that, and people were upset because they wanted him to talk about Star Trek, not about <laughs> his internment camp story, and. I, I was fascinated and appalled by his story, but I wanted to hear about it. But lots of the people there didn't want to, didn't want to hear, didn't, they wanted to just. They know him as out. the Star Trek guy. Right. They yeah. didn't want to hear the, his very real story about growing up in an internment camp. Yeah. And what that did to him. Right. Well, the nice thing about uh, the old Star Trek is they were trying to break up that idea of racism. Right. <laughs> Trying anyway. Yeah, no. I, I, I mean, look, look, they worked hard the original, at it. The, the, the original, the original Enterprise has has Japanese and Russian on the crew. So and and uh, I I believe O'Hara is canonically African, not even African American. Kenyan. Yeah, so Kenyan. Yeah, Kenya. Thank you. So yeah, so they de- definitely tried to make strides in that direction. That yes, we're all going to go into. The and they had a Jewish captain. Come on, and a Jewish first officer. <laughs> He's not a Jewish first officer. He's a how dare you? Yes, no. how dare you? <laughs> even the even the Vulcan salute is a or you know the V is is Jewish. Everything about him is Jewish. Anyways, <laughs> so the question is: Are there are there ethno? I mean, I guess the world in Star Trek has it's a one world government, right? But it's are there? There's still yeah. ethnic identities, right? But there's not ethno states. Well, yeah, yeah, one would hope not. There, yeah, so that's, France that's still exists because. Harry Kim is from, who looks, um, a, who is Asian, is, he said he's from Denmark. So, yeah, so it's kind of like, yeah, the world's kind of blended. 
hopefully, and hopefully, I think that's a consequence of you know like they brought the kimchi the to War, Denmark. And basically, some fibers came together. So we'll see. We'll see what <laughs> how that all works out. But I'm fa- I'm fascinated by this story. I think it it is so weird to have a a a nuanced, very strange little idea. And what's what happens at the end? It's kind of an anti-happy ending, right? Because Tony is turned from being a happy little boy who's playing with his friends um, to a bitter boy who is not happy. And, you know, he could be fighting the... the I was going to call them buggers... He could be fighting the passive daddy pretty soon. Probably will. Yeah. Right? That's yeah, because freaky. Because people they keep saying, oh, I, oh I, I wish I could, I'm, I'm too old and all that stuff. But I think that's kind of like points to the fact that, yes, Tony will be on those front lines one day trying to save this empire of humanity. And and what what's so interesting is I think Philip K. Dick goes to sufficient lengths to show that these uh, little bug-like aliens, right? Or not little, maybe they're full size. I don't know. Uh, these bug-like aliens, uh, they have their own ethnic slur for for humans, right? They call them maggots, white grubs, white grubs, right? Um, which is uh, you know, <laughs> interesting. But um, uh, they, I think he shows pretty well that they're not a militaristic culture. That that's not how their empire was created. Their empire seems to be created through trade and rocket ships and freighters, right? Their, all their military equipment is, uh, swapped from freighters, right? They're armed freighters. And, and the way the dad talks, right? When he says, um, uh, to think of those, uh, those, uh, what's he called them? Uh, beetles shooting down our boys from their armed freighters. Right. It's almost like it's, it's like, a I imagine a, a father in the United States. His son is in a beef, you know, bomber over Europe to think of those Germans shooting down my boy. Right. <laughs> my boy's bombing their cities. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that's horrible. Right. And, uh, I saw some, <laughs> some random, uh, <laughs> it's not thirsting. It's, um, it's, it's, it's like somebody just trying to get engagements, get clicks was saying how much was, and it was probably some organization. How much was, uh, a strategic bombing a good idea <laughs> during World War II? I was like, <laughs> uh, how about this? How about this? We don't have the war in the first place. Then we don't have to ask these ridiculously obtuse questions. Like, is it okay for us to bomb cities? Hmm. How about we don't do that in the first place? How how about we just don't? And yet, if you don't uh, have a military and everybody else does, guess what happens? The tanks roll into your country and they take your natural resources and impoverish you. And uh, coup any attempts at change, because that's just what happens. So, yeah, as Heinlein would say, ask the city fathers of Carthage. Well, I don't know how their beef started. 
Do you do you know that because their beef goes back a long way, right? I mean, the, basically, the, they're the, rivals. The, 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 and the humans, uh, the, the Carthaginians and the Romans, right? and the Romans, basically, economic and social control of Sicily, basically. But we get the story from from the Roman the point of view. Roman point of view, we don't have much Carthaginian evidence because you know. They I think if you go back far enough, those Phoenicians were just those settlers throughout the. Seems seems to be, from, yeah, from the, but were yeah, they, I mean, they traders they, they, or were they? they, they, they well, it was it was a very they, commercial empire, right? Right. Yeah, the, they the were Phoenician. very much commercial empire. It's like the Greeks, both the Phoenicians yes. and the Greeks were because they mostly hired mercenaries. Commercial. They yeah. didn't have troops of their own like the Romans. They mostly hired mercenaries because they were mostly interested in making money. So they hired lots of mercenaries to when when it came time to actually push the shove. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, lots of mercenaries doesn't work against uh culture of the romans that oh well we, yo you killed eighty thousand of my men we'll just raise more legions <laughs> uh, you, you should probably uh, i was thinking i i saw you do a delendo est uh delenda est post yes. the other day and uh oh, there's a robert e howard story that's uh called that too i, I, I mean any rational culture other than the romans after cane which is when basically Carthaginians wiped out 80,000 Roman soldiers in a day would have said, okay, we give up. Stop. Stop. No more. Romans said, nope, we'll just raise more legion. Just it's like it was just their culture. I mean, culture is important. The culture of Rome managed to triumph over the commercialism of Carthage because they just decided we're just going to keep raising armies till we smash it. No matter what. Actually, the, the humans cost. in this story kind of didn't quite remind me of the Romans, but maybe a little bit that, you know, Joseph he fought. He was in the military, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They've been on the planet for 14 years. How? He's compensated with land in the newly conquered yeah, territory. That is, yeah, that is Indeed. Which is kind of how the Romans paid their soldiers, right? Slaves yep. and, and land. Oh, yeah. Definitely. And it's kind of like this idea of there's citizenship here and like the whole – like he's a very violent man, right? In, in fact, that's probably the best way of Tony. analyzing it is that they are in, you know – a province of of a Roman Empire. Now, the, I mean, hence the name, right? Philokidic is not ignorant of this. Now he's just set it in space. But at, at points, right, where the barbarians are retaking the land, right, or they're civilized into <laughs> becoming the same kind of people who could once were colonized, now are taking Rome. There, there's still underneath it. There's a sort of cynicism about the humans and the fact that they're they are different species, right? So it's it's not a perfect analogy, but I think it it is designed to be that humans are always the same wherever we go, and we're pretty horrible. Is I think the key takeaway, and he ain't wrong. No, he's not wrong. I, I was thinking about how how um you know we. <laughs> We're so, uh, I guess it's, um, you know, nobody's mad at Genghis Khan like the way they're mad at Hitler, right? <laughs> he killed a lot of people too, but it's just so long ago. <laughs> Caesar, you know, <laughs> so long ago. I mean, we don't, we, we tend to focus on his haircut. We focus on his haircut. We focus on the fact that he was betrayed by his, his friends at school, right? <laughs> we, we focus on those things. We don't focus on, you know, the putting, putting people to the sword and and enslavement and stuff. But I was just thinking about, Paul, you, you're at some point, if we keep going down this road, you're not going to be able to, you know, quote from Cato without 
somebody pointing out, you know, Cato was in favor of genocide. Like, uh, literally, he says, Cartho Delinda Est. I've already gotten that. I've already gotten Have you? feedback about, yeah. It's, <laughs> I, 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 but it's so it's long a ago. It's a fair cop because the, the, the I mean, I mean, the, the, the phrase the Romans uh, made a desert and call it peace. I mean, the That's Romans right. themselves kind of realized what they did. did. Yeah, the, the, the Romans were not good. I, I mean, I'm not a, I'm a Romanophile, but I also realize the Romans were fucking murderous, imperialist bastards. I, yes. do, I don't deny it. <laughs> but, you know, nobody nobody happily goes and sa- says, we need breathing room. <laughs> it's just not, but, 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 it's but, not allowed. I mean, there is a strain of ultra-right nationalists that not only like saying yeah, German stuff, but they also, there's some, they're some like far-right people who use SPQR, and that really annoys me. It's like, what? Damn you. No, you, you're not allowed to use that. That's Thank ridiculous. They're not from, they're not from the Senate, nor the people. <laughs> or, or, or from Rome. No. I, I, I mean, the manhole covers in Rome still say yes. So I, I, I think that's, I think that's probably kind of, um, troll. <laughs> yeah. Well, if I hate that, just like, don't worry don't, about don't, them. <laughs> it just annoys me. So. Uh, I'm very. Uh, I think we can separate with, uh, without going. We don't have to be too. We don't have to go back too far without. I, well, I guess what I'm trying to say is like there are crimes where we can, like, identify and identify very clearly victims and continuing consequences of that oppression and make good on it. Yeah. No, we haven't mentioned Israel. Genghis Khan. I mean, rep- sla- reparations for slavery is an easier case to make than like. Reparations for whatever Genghis Khan did. Right? <laughs> Especially I mean, considering I, so I, many I, people I see, are related to you him. Might be right where if we're going to continue canceling people, so. uh-huh. we, we could cancel, still cancel Genghis Khan, right? <laughs> dig him up. If we can find his grave, we'll dig him up and say, "You're canceled, sir." But there's no like political like. Nothing political that could be actualized by canceling Genghis Khan. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't get the to way him. there still is to like cancel Jefferson. <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> you can't cancel people who are dead. You can delete them out of the history books. You could focus on their it's, crimes. It's not matter but you deleting can't... them out of the history books. It's it's yeah. recontextualizing who and what they did. Right, 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 right. I mean, making less hagiography and more, more history. Yeah, but uh, who's who's teaching these books, right? I mean, I, I mean that that's I mean that's the whole uh, whole uh, business here down in, U- in the U.S. of the 1619 project and how that's getting pushed back by what, conservatives what is, and how what is why, the 1619 the project? Hated, hated it. What is the 1619 project? Ba- ba- basically, recontextualizing early American history and basically talking frankly about the role that slavery played in building this nation. Ah, slavery. And conservatives. Okay. I don't know. When really, I first heard that about that, I'm like, yeah, this is like, I learned this in first grade and I've been studying U.S. history most of my life. So are there, I mean, there might be a lot of people who are totally ignorant of this. Yeah, there the are in a lot of states, nation, which is kind of the, what shocked me about. Yeah. There are a lot of states well, where shock me that's involved. the case. I mean, right. it just doesn't get taught in a lot of the states because, you know, politics. I mean, I, I mean, I mean, the early American history gets, gets, um, gets mythologicalized and airbrushed to an extreme degree. And when that get, when that get, when that veneer gets pulled away, a lot of people react badly to it. Conservatives, that is. 
I was talking to a coworker about you know St. Patrick's Battalion, which is like the these were these Irish who were drafted into the U.S. Army and sent to fight uh, the Mexicans. Mm, when mm-hmm. they get there, they're like, "Screw this! We're not going to yeah. fight Catholics." Yeah, or War of Conquest. So they defected to the Mexicans. Yeah, there's so a. They're ton. kind of a hero in in Mexican historiography or whatever. Absolutely, a hero battalion or whatever, and they ended up being. All executed. It was like the largest mass execution in U.S. history because when they well, they're traitors. <laughs> Hundred of them were were executed. Ridiculous. For a few days. But I was telling my friend about this, and I was like, you know, you know, I made some comment about how all this land was stolen. And he's like, of course, everyone knows that. <laughs> like, well, who doesn't know the Mexican War was a war of imperialist conquest? And I'm like, yeah, uh, yeah, but you know. The, Maybe. Most people aren't in, like, academic environments, I guess. There's a, a movie um, called One Man's Hero. It's a Tom Berenger movie where, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a dramatization of the St. Patrick's Battalion. It's pretty good. I, I'm a big fan of those HBO movies in the 90s where they just pick some figure from history and make a little movie about them. They did that a lot. Pretty sure it was an HBO movie. Um, yeah. Oh, check it out. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating because anytime you've got, so we, we didn't talk a lot about it, but Israel is the sort of the settler state that's like, it's just crazy, right? That <laughs> you've got a whole bunch of people who are settling on lands sort of inching into the Gaza Strip and West Bank and all that stuff, right? And it's like, yeah, well, we we basically don't care about you, and we got our own things going on. But there is no place for the Palestinians to move to, right? Unless unless they can get an exit visa in some country to live in, there's no place for them to move to. There's like the ocean; they can't just. Uh, I remember. Can, I remember one. This of is those... actually a pretty, I think, compelling example you're bringing up here because, like, everyone still seems to talk about the two-state solution. Right. I just saw some. Good luck with that. It's one, not- of, one of Trump's later declarations about uh, support for the two state solution. That's not the solution. It's clearly not. The solution is a one state. The solution is one state. Clearly. A, a secular power sharing, some kind of thing worked out. One secular state is a solution. But Indeed. we're still in this ethno nationalist. I mean, it's worse than ever. It, it's, it's as bad as the 20th century, I think. And, of, and there's, uh, so a lot of support. There's a lot of support for it. And if you, you know, say, hey, maybe we should uh, not be supporting this. Let's do it individually. The divestment uh, thing, right? Um, there's like punishment. <laughs> punishment. But, you know, you, you can make and break laws. You can be uh, removed from office if you say, you know, maybe this isn't the best way to go because... It's it's just blind support, and it's crazy. And I think about how, you know, we've got on this planet, um, it's not even habitable, right? He can't even go outside without putting on a spacesuit. He his parents gave <laughs> yeah, him a why? Why do we own this? Yeah, why? why his why parents gave him it? an EEP, whatever that stands for. Turns out, it, we think of, oh, it's a cute robot dog. Turns out, it's actually a, like a killing machine that also is a robot protector. It's a bodyguard, right? 
Yeah. How the fuck did that happen? Pet. I don't know what the other E could be. Extermination. It doesn't say. <laughs> it's just. It's just like. Um, it's thrown in there, and we think, oh, it's a cute story about a boy and his dog. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> I mean, you only find yeah. that out at the end that it's a can be used as a weapon. But that's, that's right, and it does it automatically at the beginning. He's like, yeah, that thing's got to stay in the back. You know, can't come in with that. <laughs> so, um, I just think about the there's I, there's a truck ride in Man in the High Castle. Joe Cinadell is a truck driver, right? We've got the mm-hmm. the Pass Udetti. It, it it even sounds uh, Italian, right? Everything about this story is Italian. Even <laughs> Joe Rossi's Italian. His parents are Italian. The place that they're in is Ita- Italian ants or whatever they are. Um, but they're just regular people, right? It's just a regular city, and yet they're occupied. And so I, I'm thinking, like, if I was, if I lived in Italy. And there was a military base right beside me. And um, something bad happens to the United States. And I don't like being occupied. Like, you probably didn't hear about this story. There was a story in um, in Korea uh, so, some uh, a few years ago. There was a military transport that ran over, like, a schoolgirl. A Korean school schoolgirl. And there was a huge backlash against it. Because who gets to put them on trial? U.S. military, right? They don't get tried in a Korean court. They get tried by the U.S. military. And usually the solution is not to put these guys in jail for a million years. Usually the solution is to send them away. It's the Catholic Church's solution to problem priests, right? You send them somewhere else. And usually that solves the problem. But if the story gets a little bit of legs behind it, and there's a little bit of resentment about being a fucking occupied country you're gonna have people turning on people saying you know you're a nice guy and everything but i hate your fucking people get the fuck out of here right it's just human nature i i i mean i mean that's the whole controversy over say like the u.s bases in okinawa and Japanese want them gone. What a, what a surprise. You know, the war's been well, over for and, and, more and, than and half a century. Rape and assault it's from be soldiers a... on the local population. That's so, right. Yeah. That's okay. The, the Taiwanese will probably take those bases. <laughs> well, we'll see what happens there. But um, there's definitely it, – it, it's crazy the amount of um, depth that he's going for here. And it isn't pedestrian. I mean, what's so funny about that review – Right, by the people are trying to sell it for Philip K. Dick. They call it pedestrian. One of the things that makes me think that they use that word is there's a lot of walking in the story. Right? He walks out of his bedroom, he walks into the breakfast room, out of the dome. <laughs> it's not even a real grapefruit he's eating. Um, he eats his cereal, he walks out of the house, he walks to the bus stop or walks down the road, some guy gives him a ride, he gets off that. It's like a lot of walking. Right, he walks into the city after talking to the lady on the bus, and then that's what he meant. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a regular old story about a guy who goes for a walk. Um, (laughs) um, But the amount of detail, like there's a kind of tree mentioned that, like he just built a whole world here, and he built this whole world to tell a very tiny, tiny little story about a kid getting rejected on the schoolyard by a bunch of his friends. Because of who he is, what he was born, what color his skin is, 
or what color his spacesuit is. The fact that he has to wear a spacesuit. Everybody there, they have shells, right? <laughs> he has a shell. It's artificial. It's bizarre. It's bizarre and fascinating. This review that you're mentioning, yeah. I just think it's... I, I really do think people read Philip Dick backwards sometimes instead of forward. This is literally the they, people who are trying to sell it. They start from his, like, they, they start with Valis, right? They start, yes. They're like, oh, I, I like I like LSD. <laughs> yeah, so Dick was kind of into that stuff. And this is trippy stuff. Ubik, they like Ubik, maybe Three Stigmata, Palmer Eldridge, the Valis stuff. You know, they, they like that stuff. And then when they start reading more Philip Dick, they're like, oh, this doesn't have that stuff. Right? But they're reading Philip Dick backwards. They're like, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of like if you, you listen to like the Jupiter Symphony by Mozart, and then you listen to one of his, you know, earlier string quartets or something, and you're like, oh, that's not as good as the Jupiter, or it's not quite giving the same kind of feel. They just don't understand. They don't understand what he's like. It doesn't mean that that earlier work isn't doing something really awesome. It, it's almost but like somebody listens to a piece of other things at this time. In somebody life. listens to a piece of music in a foreign language and they say, yeah, yeah, that's a really romantic uh, song. I really like it. And then like, they don't know what the lyrics are. They just know what the beat is. Right. The, well, yeah, you're sort of understanding it in one way. Right. I saw all the words, all the words passed, you know, into my eyes, but I didn't understand what the story was about. And so if you don't understand something, it's hard to say, this is an amazing story. I give it five out of five. <laughs> it's easier to say, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> but, but I just, I think the idea of they are literally doing this to try to make money, right? It's not like they're, they're, this judgment isn't because, isn't because, you know, they have an agenda. The agenda is to make money. And the fact that they don't understand it means it's it's like i read a ton of science fiction you know who writes about kids a lot philip k dick anybody else nobody else nobody else writes about kids that's weird science fiction yeah mm -hmm. it's just not a thing right you, you, you there might be a kid in a story maybe usually there isn't right there might be well there's ya fiction which is, you know, well, a different there, there, thing. There, there, there's, all, there's a lot of MG fiction too, Jesse. What's MG? Middle grade. Middle. Okay. Well, when did that start? And wh uh, what is it like? I've read. There's like a book called School that's about a more. He's not a Mormon kid. He's a hippie kid who goes to a his grandma's house, and you know, it's uh, there. There are a genre of school school books for kids to, you know read in class and stuff absolutely but we're talking no, no, this, short no, this, story fiction markets from the 1950s i don't think anybody's writing anything like that and the short story market's basically dead right what little the, the short story market these days is adult it's true no but it, 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 it as a it was it was always adult right in you no, know adult as so sorry as adult generally it's adult protagonists and adult stories I mean, a story like Tony the Beatles. No, but even Bird even back Bird. then, it was weird to have a kid as the main character, right? That's weird. It's odd. In, in science fiction, incredibly odd. You know, Stephen King has characters who are young, right? Stand by me and such. Um, but that's horror fiction. Yeah, he does kids really well. He does do kids really well. Um, 
but you know how yeah, many fiction, how many uh, HP Lovecraft it. stories are have kids in them or have have kids as the main character? None. How many Edgar Allan Poe stories? <laughs> Zero. I, I think I think uh, I think uh, Randolph Carter might be quite. He's young a, it might be a teen. But he's not ten. Yeah, he's like a teen interested in dream. Yeah, quest. he's yeah, not ten. As young as you get. Yeah. Um. It, it's not. Did you guys think about the 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 childhood of these um, these Pasudetti? Because mm-hmm. we we know a little bit about his education, right? Mm-hmm. So all we really know about these uh, the the Pasudetti's childhood is that occasionally this human kid comes and makes them play with them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what are they? They're so, building a space you know, station, right? If you read like, a, there's been a few interesting books that came out about like the the childhood of, of slaves, and um, you know, because the plantations in the antebellum South were, you know, they weren't segregated, whatever they were, right? Mm-hmm. They were. You know, whites and blacks work together, you know, one, some were overseers and some were laborers who, you know, could be mistreated by overseers. So it's not a, a position of equality, but it was, it was an interracial environment, right? Mm-hmm. And for, so the childhood aspect of this, right? So to be a, a black child sent to work in the fields at seven, eight, nine, mm-hmm. right? That's their experience, right? Their childhood is stolen, essentially, mm-hmm. right? I think there's even a book called that, Stolen Childhood, right? But if you were like a, a white kid, raised, a, a, the master's child raised on that same plantation, right? As a young kid, you might actually play with some of those Absolutely. children. But then someday you're told you don't do that anymore, right? Mm-hmm. You don't play with them. This is your side, right? That's kind of the experience that Tony here has, that he gets to that age where Right, this facade just doesn't work anymore. Yeah, like, you have to grow up. So even without the defeat, I guess that's my question. Even without the defeat, Tony's relationship with these Pasudetti children is going to change really quick, anyways. Mm-hmm. Right, it's going to go from being, from his perspective of relationship of he thinks we're just like equals, right? We're just growing up together, yep. playing together. Yep. At some yep. point, he's going to realize that he has substantial power over them. Right? Yes. Uh, yeah, it, it's uh, almost the cusp of awakening, like and and he is going to be. It, it, it's like um, I was trying to think of Joel Chandler Harris, right? He's got the these stories of of a little. Bo- it's, I assume it's a little white boy being told stories by a, basically a black uncle, right? Mm-hmm. Uncle Remus, um, and there are stories about black people done as cartoons, basically with with Bugs Bunny and you know. Daffy Duck and such. And they, they're all fighting each other and nobody ever gets killed. But, um, the lessons there are for black children. White child's getting it. But when he grows up, he's going to be like Robert E. Howard or Philip K. Dick. Uh, sorry, not Philip K. Dick. Uh, H.P. Lovecraft. H.P. Lovecraft had like a black maid in his house, right? Um, he doesn't say, you know, and now, uh, although he may, he might have affection for any of these black servants, he doesn't say, and now we're going to get, I'm going to marry your daughter or she's going to marry me. Is <laughs> no, you take your place as the Lord of the manor. Um, and yeah, you can have, uh, babies, but they're not legitimate, right? And you don't introduce them in polite society. Uh, if you're Jefferson or whatever, <laughs> you might have fun playing with them. But uh, they need to know their place. 
So uh, you can free them when you die. That's right. Some of them, anyways. Yeah. Um, Sometimes I'm going to read. Yeah, uh, kids were freed when Jefferson. I'm going to read uh, from the story here in a couple spots. Um, so this is when he meets the uh, Pasadena woman. She smiled faintly, ironically. Oh, with your model spaceport, I hope you and your friends get to finish it. She knows what's going to happen, right? Of course we'll finish it, Tony said, surprised. It's almost done. What did she mean? The Pasadetti mm-hmm. woman hurried off before her, he could ask her. Tony was troubled and uncertain. More doubts filled him. After a moment, he headed slowly into the lane that took him towards the residential section of the city, past the stores and factories, to the place where his friends lived. So the place where he friends with lived, it's not a ghetto exactly, but it's not the community that he's from, right? The group of Pasudetti children eyed him silently as he approached. They had been playing in the shade of an immense bengalo tree, whose ancient branches drooped and swayed with the air currents pumped through the city. So even their city is, is a uh, domed city, right? Now the, they sat unmoving. I didn't expect you today, Baprith said. In an expressionless voice, Tony halted awkwardly, and his eep did the same. How are things? That's a very philosophic line. <laughs> he murmured, fine. I got a ride part way. Fine. Tony squatted down in the shade. None of the past children stirred. They were small, not as large as Terran children. Notice he's calling them children, or the viewpoint here is calling them children. Their shells had not hardened, had not turned dark and opaque like horn. It gave them a soft, unformed appearance. Uh, they're the, uh, the, uh, gr- grubs or whatever, right? They're grub-like. Uh, but at the same time, it lightened their load. They moved more easily than their elders. They could hop and skip around still. <laughs> That's the only thing preventing the adults from, <laughs> from hopping and skipping, right? But they were not skipping right now. Oh, Philip Kiddick, such a great writer. What's the matter? Another Philip Kiddick line. Tony demanded. What's wrong with everybody? No one answered. Where's the model? He asked. Have you fellows been working on it? After a moment, Liar, Liar, L-L-Y-R-E, Liar, nodded slightly. Tony felt dull anger rise up inside him. Say something. What's the matter? What are you all mad about? Mad? Beprith echoed. We're not mad. Tony scratched aimlessly in the dust. He knew what it was. The war again. The battle going on near Orion. His anger burst up wildly. Forget the war. Everything was fine yesterday before the battle. Sure, Liar said. It was fine. Tony caught up the edge in, caught the edge in the voice. It happened a hundred years ago. It's not my fault. Sure, Beprith said. <laughs> so this relationship is the heart of the story, right? The heart of the story is kids on the, on the playground being affected by what's going on in the news. This happens every day around the world, right? To many, many kids. And I've, I've had experiences like this. Some, some, your parents are all upset about something and you don't know what it is, right? If the, uh, I remember, you know, when 9-11 happened, I was like, oh, fuck, this is going to be in the news for a long time. <laughs> People are going to be all up in arms about all sorts of weird shit, right? You think of all those, all those Arab kids who are, like endlessly prosecuted, prosecuted, persecuted, both persecuted, both, <laughs> both, both. That's the sad part. Oh. Uh, and not even just Arab kids. Anybody who's got a name that's slightly weird, right? Getting 
attacked for nothing they did, nothing anybody they know did. Horrible. Humans are fucking awful. And we do it to ourselves. That's what Philip K. Dick is so sensitive to. He's capturing something. This is the, an- this is the antithesis of pedestrian. Pedestrian makes it sound like it's an everyday thing. Everybody does it, right? Just another regular, you know, Earth getting invaded story. No, that's not what it is. It's the opposite of pedestrian. I don't know anybody who's written anything like this, except for, like I'm saying, Ender's Game is sort of addressing it, but it's so wrapped up in its own explanations for why it's okay that we did all this because we did it by accident. Sorry about the genocide. That's not well, what the, Philip K. Dick's doing. When books after Ender's Game, Ender tries to make up for what he did. Of course, so. of course, well, you got to be nice well, to the Indians now. Of course, it, 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 I mean, I don't think they're as good as Ender's Game, but they're not. Ender recognizes the problem, and we've lost Evan. I think. Yeah, well, going back, he went away for a bit. Um, oh, so my point. My point is, is this is. This is a very extraordinary story, and trying to rate it makes no sense. Uh, the fact that it got published... I, I know you're not a fan of ratings in general. But this is why I'm not a fan of ratings. How could you rate this? What are you going to compare it to, Paul? <laughs> Other Philip K. Dick stories, right? Well, well that and, and stories of stories that uh, touch on these themes, like, I, the, like the stories we've talked about throughout, throughout this episode... And your game and Eastward. This, Ho this is and... half an hour long, yeah, right? It's is very and and those are very <laughs> Eastward Ho this is podcast is longer than this oh story. oh yeah, but Eastward Ho yeah, is also is very the different. Stories written decades later. I don't, I don't see the point of it. Well, I mean, that's well, Eastward it. Ho is fifty eight. So no, I mean, no, it makes sense to compare it, but it doesn't make sense to say you know yeah, this to is rate it, to rate it. Right. And yeah. I think that the instinct to rate is. A, is it's kind of like trying to understand things, right? We're trying to classify things, but but that's the opposite. Like even the 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 instinct here is to try and sell it, right? So I don't think this is an outstanding story. I don't think we're going to get a lot of money for it. Let's send it to one of the lower markets, right? But this other story I think is better. So a very similar story in in character, um, not the one we did last time, but um, uh, the father thing, right? Very similar story, in <laughs> if there is one. Um, it's a Philogenic story. It's one of the ones I would classify with this one. Um, it was sold to the highest market, FNSF. But that one's easier to understand. It's it's basically Invasion of the Body Snatchers. But the thing is, Invasion of the Body Snatchers came out after it, right? They're almost identical times. So he didn't write it in a, independently. Uh, he he wrote it independently, right, from uh, the Jack Finney. But Jack okay. Finney's does it over, like, a whole novel length. And it's not about the kid. And his... It's just, it's just fascinating. This guy is so important. Philip K. Dick is so important because he's doing things that nobody else is doing. He's sensitive to things that nobody else is doing. Nobody else notices or can, even can get a hold of. So yeah, starting with Vallis and saying I I, I dig I dig drugs. <laughs> That's one way to understand Philip K. Dick. Uh, but you could just read a short story like this and say, what the hell is like? I I think the Crystal Crypt is it's almost impenetrable. But I, uh, and I can say I don't like it because I I don't I don't get it. But as soon as I get it, I'm going to like it a lot more, which I think 
is why we should do that one next. Well, then we'll put it on the schedule. Sounds good. And so the uh, lis- uh, listeners, months ahead, months from now, will get to hear this episode. And Possibly we'll years. <laughs> Could be years. <laughs> Could be years before you missed. Well, what did you say? I didn't re-listen to your podcast on it, Evan. What did you say? Do you remember? I, I mostly talked about, I think, this post-colonial and ethno-nationalism and things like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I think ultimately, I mean, the, it's not going to happen in this story and it's probably not going to happen in our world. I, I think like the one state solution is, is the way to go. <laughs> about the no <laughs> state saying? solution? Like, we can't do that. The no that solution, solution is not going to happen. Better. And, and there's no way but, to get there though, right? Well, it's easier to get to a one-state solution than a no-state. Yeah, solution probably. It's, it's, you know, but I, I keep thinking of of Israel Palestine. There may have been a time a two-state solution was was viable, you know, but now like most of the West Bank's been colonized, right? So any Palestinian state is going to be basically non protectorate. Oh, it's not going to be viable. Yeah, I mean, yeah because I've because I've, I've seen extension of Israel this... anyway. So. Why? I mean, the only reason not to make a a single state, it's the same reason you can't do this here, is because the Beatles would, you know, here the 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 Beatles would be in charge, right? Yeah, would be the majority. Yeah, right, right. And so, uh, yeah, before before we wrap, I want to uh, just take a uh, detour, and I I I think this is very useful. Uh, so I watched a movie, uh, Evan. I told you about it. Um, yeah on direct message last night. Um, it called the wild one. Paul, you've seen this movie with, uh, oh, Marlon Brando. <laughs> Marlon Brando. It's a 1953 yes. movie, uh, where Marlon Brando, I, I, I swear there's a scene in it. I didn't see the scene while I was watching it, but I swear there's a scene in it where he's, they say to him, uh, what are you rebelling against? And he says, what you got? <laughs> maybe that's, maybe that's, uh, from the red dwarf. Uh, version of the movie i just remember um that when i heard of this movie i'm like that looks stupid i don't think marlon brando's important and i agree marlon brando's not that important he i can see why people think he is watching him on screen he's he's handsome and he's has personality i guess on screen i was much more interested in lee marvin in the movie because he's wonderful he kept saying i love you johnny kept saying it over and over again. Um, now, what's so weird is this this uh, movie is a 1953 movie. It's based on a short story. The short story is about a real incident in California where uh, a bunch of motorcyclists, motorcycle clubs, showed up and, quote-unquote, took over the town. Um, basically, uh, the idea is it, it was a riot, they call it. Uh, now, the thing is, is... Uh, it's probably overblown. Nobody died, right? Um, there's a photograph of somebody sitting on a motorcycle with a beer in his hand and a bunch of beer bottles underneath. Uh, apparently it was staged, right? Um, it was a, there was a whole phenomenon in the fifties, which we don't get too much into in, the, in uh, science fiction, um, called the juvenile delinquents, right? And there's another movie, uh, color film with, uh, one of those famous movie actors who killed himself with a car. You know, handsome guy. You know who I'm talking about? James Dean. James Dean, right? James Dean's most famous movie, Rebel Without a Cause, right? Yep. Um, 
And Harlan Ellison used to write these novels too. Basically, there's all these JDs. They, they literally had the ex- expression JDs, juvenile delinquents. What's wrong with society, right? But the biker gangs that uh, are still with us really started in earnest right after World War II. And the mythology is, is the soldiers come back, they were ex-bomber pilots, and they're all PTSD'd. And so they join, get motorcycle clubs going, and they live the wild lifestyle, right? Uh, there's a one percenters, what, one percent of people, uh, are, the, the number is like 90, as somebody says, 99% of, of, uh, of motorcyclists are good drivers and obey the law, right? Some agency that's in favor of motorcycles being paid for by motorcycle corporations, right? Um, is set, promoting this idea. So they took the opposite. They said, we're the one percenters. Right. We're outlaws, outlaw motorcycle gangs are motorcycle clubs. They're not outlaws that the government has made them illegal. They're outlaw in the sense that they don't fucking care about your fucking laws. Right. So when they show up and they wreck this town, supposedly, I'm talking about the movie now. Um, we see the main character saying, I don't like no cops. <laughs> I don't make no deals with cops and they fight each other and they drink too much and they dance with the girls and they're making fun of the old people, right? All these old people in the town who didn't fight in world war two. It's like, this is a reaction. (laughs) This whole reaction is, is like when you come back from the war, you're traumatized. Uh, You got told to go and kill people. Um, You're dropping bombs on people. Whether you, unless you're a psychopath, right? Unless you thought that was fun, you have to deal with it. One way of dealing with it is drinking and not obeying people who tell you what to, what was a good idea, who are only reading about it in the newspapers. So Philip K. Dick falls into a very weird situation. He wasn't old enough to be a soldier. If the war went on longer, he would be, right? He'd have to worry about that. And when he went to college, he... Uh, wasn't good at the military stuff, so he, his ROTC didn't last very long, right? right. <laughs> he got kicked out or whatever. Um, cause he's just too sensitive. But he has to think about this because there's a universal draft, right? It didn't go away. This is why it's so interesting. If you were in the war, you were in the war and you come back, you have to deal with it. If your parents are not in the war and they're raising you, then they're dealing with it the way they deal with it by arguing about on the at the kitchen table. And if you're a kid, you don't know what the hell's going on. That's what's so extraordinary about this story is we know exactly what's going on, but Tony doesn't know, not until the end, right? He just he's he's innocent, wide-eyed, doesn't even notice that his dad threatens to beat him. Fascinating. Fascinating. And it's it's like a masterwork for what it is. If if this is your target, and your target is this tiny little thing, right? And you hit that target, that's amazing. Now, if people don't recognize that it is a masterwork. That's my point about that movie. Um, what's it called? Uh, again, not Rebel Without a Cause. What's the other? The Wild One, right? The Wild Ones. Uh, no, it's The Wild One. What's wild so f- One? The Wild One, it's called. What's so funny is that movie makes no sense. At the beginning, there's a disclaimer saying, this is a real incident. It, it really happened. We put this movie out there as a warning, 
to our society so that people don't let something like this happen again. Right. And the disclaimer seems to be like, we're not sensationalizing this. Although that's really what the movie, is, you know, is trying to make money and trying to be sensational. Um, but the thing is, is the least wild person in the whole movie is the one who we're supposed to think is the wild one other than the townspeople. Right. He's the one who's restraining all these, uh, wild bikers. He's just saying, calm down. <laughs> Have a seat. Have a drink. <laughs> you, you, you don't do voices very well. No, that's Marlon Brando's voice in this movie. <laughs> no, it is. Oh, dude, have you seen it? <laughs> it's hard to believe how high his voice is pitched. It's crazy. Anyways, um, Lee Marvin's got the opposite voice. He's much more wild. He's, you know, it's almost uh, homoerotic, his relationship with, with Johnny. In any case, at the end of the movie, um, the town almost murders uh, Marlon Brando. Like, they literally are gonna try and murder him. And somebody throws a tire iron at him. Um, he gets knocked off his bike, and his bike runs over an old man. And they are basically ready to lynch him. Um, and then the state police come in and then, uh, let him go. Because he was not responsible. The whole point of this movie is like to try and understand a phenomenon that's happen happening. I, I'm not really trying to understand, but that's the point of like, of, of, uh, it's, it, it, that's the point it's trying to say it's making, but it doesn't give you a clue. There's no mention that these guys are war veterans, not at all. And they don't understand it. That's the thing is they don't really understand it at the time, right? It's hard to understand why these biker gangs existed and still exist. But their the philosophy is right there. I hate cops. Why? Because cops are authority. Authorities tell you what to do. Authorities tell you to go kill people. And if you don't do it, they hit you or they shoot you. Fascinating. It's a fascinating psychology. The 50s are fucking weird, man. It's a, it's a, it's like a post-traumatic stress society. That's my point. I think I'm done. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF audio. I don't remember the details. It was, I mean, it was kind of, kind of lame when I think about it now. <laughs> but I, I, I do Were you afraid? Were you afraid? But my physiological response oh, yeah. to it is what was so striking. Uh-huh. Is, it was just like some post-apocalyptic nonsense and like our gang was being <laughs> tracked by the other gang and they were running. Anyways, but like I haven't had this kind of physiological response after waking up from a, a dream in so long. It was uh-huh. like my heart was beating for like 20 minutes. Wow. Like, you really got yeah, an injection, an adrenaline injection. Wild. Wow. That's, yeah. Must, maybe there was something else going on that was more intense because what I remember wasn't that. Yeah, my, um, um, I have nightmares all the time. Uh, I used to, you know, when I was a kid, I would like be really upset and afraid to go back to sleep. Um, but, uh, I have nightmares all the time now. They're just dreams that like have no, uh, I was like, oh, that's weird. 
<laughs> it's, like a, it's a very intellectualized uh, response. So, yeah, I haven't had um, one of those for a long time. And uh, uh, it's funny because it, it whatever you take in, you know, it can be fodder for your dreams for sure. But uh, yeah. what do you think? Did this, did this story influence your dreaming? No, I read it today. Oh, okay. I, I've just been reading Black House, which isn't ah, that at all. Right, that's I'm the always Straub thinking about and... Stephen King now, so maybe. Oh, I'm, I'm always I, up for I more I didn't finish things. The Stand, so it's, that, was, that ended up being so bad. So disappointing. <laughs> was it was it the regular one or the uncut version? What version of the stand was it? No, the book's fine. I I don't know why people think it's one of King's best because it's not even top top ten. My top ten doesn't have the stand in it. Um, <laughs> no, but what version? I give it a star one? rating, please. I only read ever read the extended one. I ever read the the, the, the first okay. version, which I heard I should do because it's it it. Because there's tonal problems with the, maybe that's why. I, maybe if I just read the original, it's better. Because it's it's such a '60s novel. Because it's really hippies versus the man, you know. Kind of <laughs> mm-hmm. Another TV reaction. Series, the new TV series did a bit of that, but not enough. Was that's, King was never a hippie, right? It was pretty bad. I never even finished it. King I, I was never a hippie. So watch the last couple episodes. He's got to be the man. He's got to be the man. King was never a hippie, right? Well, no. He's like he's politically he's he's against extremists, so he would be with the hippies, just in the sense like you just chill out and don't just have a don't drink, do anything too extreme. <laughs> like he doesn't like extremes on either side. Yeah. In in his like the political extremist is one of his common villains, and it's <laughs> like. Randall Flagg in the book The Stand, he has he's like a his backstory is that he's a member of like left wing and right wing organizations, <laughs> radical right wing and left wing organizations. But they're all from like the sixties. That's why it doesn't work in the nineties. He <laughs> yeah. kind of updated it because mm-hmm. when he expanded it, he reset it in the nineties. Stupid. And like some of the sentiment doesn't quite work. What about uh, so, what about Roadwork? Is that available as an audiobook? I think I have an audio book for Roadwork. I, mean, I should yeah. have everything by King, except Steven. stuff in the last 10 years. <laughs> Roadwork. That's the only, I think that's the only one I haven't read of his. That's, um... Yeah, I have it. I can play a bit of it. You tell me yeah. if it's any good. Yeah. All right, gotta go, guys. Have a good rest of your you day. You too. Have a good one, Paul. Hey, right. Paul, there, before you leave, did you see, uh, um... Uh, Representative Raskin says, "In my mind, Liz Cheney is the hero standing up for the truth." <laughs> I told you we don't talk pop politics anymore. And All right, well, I'm, I'm going to say it. Inf- it it infects. Uh, so I'll talk politics, and you just listen, okay? <laughs> you can nod and smile. <laughs> I'd, I'd rather, sh- I'd rather ineptly shoot things and play our own well, than talk politics. All right, maybe later, Paul. Maybe later. Right. See you, Bye. Paul. Bye-bye. See you, Evan. Uh, Roadwork. Yeah. Uh, you were going to okay, play. Okay, here's the audio book for yeah. Roadwork that I have. I don't hear anything yet. You hear it? No, I can't hear anything. Oh. 
because because it's microphones, not. It's all right. It's not bad. It's not bad. Okay. Um. So let's. Just I've actually. I think I maybe skimmed the book. I never actually read it. Hmm. Got so much good shit though, but it's all long. You don't like long stuff. That's why I like this. Twenty seventy four pages. I'm thinking like I think Black House is really maybe it's distracting for some people because it's so Dark Tower adjacent, and it was written right before he finished the Dark Tower novels. Uh, I think it's, this might be one of his first books he wrote after he got smashed up. <laughs> when was that? I don't know. 1999. 2001, it says the movie, uh, the book came out. Sequel to Talisman. Yeah. yeah, the Talisman's awesome. They're both really good, I think. And, but they both seem like very king novels. I, again, I, I think I need to. Have you like, not read any Strop? Read, I've just read Ghost Story, but. Hey, and like, it says seems like, that a oh, chapter. King could have written this. says no, that there's a chapter written about. Uh, Pose the Raven in this book. Did, um. Well, yeah, there's a whole, uh, well, there's a, there's a character who remembered one, only remember the Raven. She's like a working class person. She only remembers the Raven. But does she know that the Raven's not really a Raven? That's my question. Well, I think you're the only person who knows that. No, I, I swear people in the ancient days knew this too. Because, like, but, I, I, uh, there was illustrations showing the bottom of the bird and not the head. But if, uh, yeah, it's, he doesn't go that way with it. It's just there, because there is, like, a raven, uh, an avatar of the bad guy. <laughs> did you uh, did you hear about this on Time Magazine? It's funny. So I was thinking of secret cabals, uh, people who know what the raven's really about. <laughs> um, there's, a, there's a story in Time Magazine about... Uh, uh, like it's a bragging story. Like, aren't we great? And aren't we all going to get great jobs now that we're uh, successful getting Biden election? Um, they call they like, are calling themselves a secret cabal, um, who work together with uh, really hard with uh, Time Cabal, uh, Biden, um, with Facebook and oh yeah, <laughs> this has got to be it. February fourth, secret bipartisan campaign that saved the twenty twenty election. <laughs> yeah, this is the story. <laughs> What's so funny is, is it's, it's like they're bragging that they're a secret cabal and that they're manipulating <laughs> the election. Um, control F cabal. There it is. Uh, that's why the participants want the secret history of the 2020 election told, even though it sounds like a paranoid fever dream. A well-funded cabal of powerful people ranging across industries and ideologies working together behind the scenes to influence perceptions, change rules and laws, steer media coverage, and control the flow of information. This isn't a hit piece. This is a prom- like, aren't we great? <laughs> <laughs> calling themselves a cabal. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you know, we got Obama to like uh, tank uh, Bernie's campaign, get Biden in there, and we got we got uh, Kamala, even though she's super unpopular, nobody wanted to vote for her. We got her VP. Come on, we're geniuses. Give us jobs. Crazy. Who's getting the, Who's getting that job? That that one uh, 
you know, the lady Mira from Tandon, yeah. right? She's getting the job. <laughs> uh, did uh, Bernie vote well, for her yet? Because <laughs> if he did, the, the, it's like, eh, eh, says, you, you called me everything except for an ignorant slut. <laughs> no, he did. I think it was some other. Yeah, it was. Senator that was the right? senator. <laughs> called him every, and he called kept saying it over and over again. <laughs> you called me everything but a ignorant slut, she, and that's why I'm voting for you today against my better judgment. <laughs> did Sanders vote for her? Uh, that's uh, that's what the question I have is is like because everybody's assuming he is going to vote for her. No, because everyone picks on rightfully like Ted Cruz for being a simp for Trump, right? Mm. After he like said your wife's uh, uh, ugly, yep. <laughs> right? Yeah, he's the one. Yeah, or or so he says your your dad killed Kennedy. Which one? It was, it was either Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz. He said had an ugly wife. Maybe it was Ted <laughs> Cruz, right? But they both simp for him, right? Yep. I don't know what simp means, but yep. Simp me basically simp for lick their boot, right? Oh, bootlicker. Become their servant. Oh, simp versus pimp, somebody says. Simp. S-I-M. Yeah, no, but they're saying simp versus pimp. It says to melancholy reminisce. Uh, It's way way better to be a pimp than a simp. Clearly. But. Oh, it's short for simpleton? No. If Sanders votes for this person after all the shit she called him on Twitter, like, she's the one who came up with, like, the Bernie Bros narrative. Yes. And people believe it. She's probably more responsible than anyone else for like sp- spreading it, anyways. Yeah. If he votes for her, I'll be really extra disappointed. <laughs> I'm already disappointed in him. Well, I'll be yeah. extra disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's actually worse. That's what like, I'm saying. <laughs> he has no principles. I don't know. He, like, he's, you, he says I, he has I principles. Know, like, but not having principles, I know that because they're politicians. But when you let someone walk over you. Yeah. Like, uh, like, for what it's purpose? Like, that's why Ted Cruz is so odious. It's like, at least politically expedient to support Trump, maybe. It's good for Ron election, Paul whatever. is admirable in that he fucking but votes his conscience. Right? He said something about your wife. You guys should stand up for yourself. Well, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, I that's know. the that's the reasonable. I'm, I'm, more, I'm more alpha in this way, I guess. <laughs> no, no, that's the reasonable that way. Kind of but you could also just ignore what, what people say and just look at what they do as well, right? Because, you know, people, you know, Obama talks a real good game. But the kill list is what I'm worried about. The fact that there was people on the kill he put a teenager on the kill list and he... He executed yeah, I, I don't that. Think, I don't think Ted Cruz is supporting Trump because his kill list was no, was no, different or no, because it, it is because he's a simp or whatever yeah. that whatever that means. Uh, uh, was uh, what's that line? So I uh, think the terms. I think simp is like a uh, comes from like these. It says so someone, someone who foolishly overvalues someone else who, and defers to them, putting them who, on a pedestal. Uh, well, like kind of go goofy over a pretty girl, right? And do anything she wants, right. but never get late. Yeah, that also says That's a man who foolishly overvalues and defers to a woman putting her on a pedestal. Yeah. But I, you can you can simp a man, too. But what's the... Well, yeah, that's why the second, someone who foolishly well, overvalues someone else. So, yeah. Yeah, he but he wasn't fucking, fucking his wife, right? Yeah. In a way, it's the same idea. It, it's It's... 
it's the kind of it's the kind of talk that you may cancel if you put this up on the right. Yeah, I make all sense assumptions about gender. Yeah, it's language. Well, that that is, I think, very. It's very so. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know if I. I think I sent it to you. That a Joaquin Boaz, um, talking to him yeah, on direct guy. message, yeah. so he's, fucking he's annoying. I haven't talked so to him in a while. Fucking annoying. Because he's like, he's like, I don't know, like I said, his explanation, his name is not, that's not his real name. I'm not even sure he's a he. Anyways, um, he was, he said long ago, somebody, um, one of his academic advisors told him that he needed to have a separate name um, for his online stuff. And I'm like, oh yeah, it's yeah. probably good advice if you're, if you're trying to have, um when you can be canceled. And he says, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> fuck you. You don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Bullshit. I said, I, I, I said, I'm uncancelable. I, you know, I, I work for myself. My boss doesn't, the one guy I work for doesn't care anything about that because they only care about results, right? They don't care about, you know, there's no prestige. I, I, I don't have a, uh, you know, a career outside of, outside of what I'm doing, right? That I could advance. I'm not going to become a professor or landed professor or a gentried professor or anything like that, right? And I'm not in a, in a, a school where they advertise, advertise me by name. Uh, or if they do, they don't, they only use my first name, right? They don't. But more importantly, Korean parents don't, don't care, right? They're not into this uh, stuff, so I, I'm just not. I'm uncancelable, and he's like, "Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about." <laughs> like, fuck you. <laughs> and I was saying that's why I've always used my real name online. What's funny is my account on SFF Audio doesn't use my name at all, but it's just because of how I acquired it, and I also don't care about like you know. I don't use my last name on the website. It's there. I just don't talk about it because I'm not uh, always taking selfies of myself and positioning myself for prettier pictures. But um, what did Will called him a big lib? Uh, <laughs> um, but there, there is there is this um, this phenomenon where it's somebody said um, the other day, uh, and it was I think it was Glenn Greenwald said. Um, uh, or maybe it was Jimmy Dore said, uh, they said, what do you, what do you say to, to this? And it says, this is some, uh, mass, uh, it's, it's, it was like, um, uh, it wasn't Tucker Carlson. It was one of the other ones. It's like, this is mass, 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 mass masturbating for this class. <laughs> it's just getting them information that makes them go <laughs> really happy. Right. Um, so I saw Paul's, um, one of the podcasts Paul's associated with, um, that says gold for the year, um, read more BIPOC. And I'm like, why? Because we're getting more who? BIPOC. BIPOC. Oh. And I'm like, why, why BIPOC? What do you learn from BIPOCs? And I'm thinking, well, you can learn something, I guess, but wouldn't you learn a lot more if you looked at their class? Like, 
they're ex- they're literal ex- don't classify them by what their skin color is classify them by their but as individuals i would say like this read this author cuz this author's amazing or read um you know this this uh people who grew up in this situation like why i'm like reading jack london is his his life is fucking weird right and he wrote about it that's what's so astounding philip k dick's life is pretty boring but his weird nature um you know that he was able to capture these weird moments is astounding and and he's super empathic right so he's taking he's taking on these weird things why do i like reading lovecraft it's not cuz he's white and racist pretty sure it's not his white skin color that makes me read his stuff pretty sure it has to do with the fact that he's discussing weird psychology and and he's bringing such like em- I don't know, insight from his unconscious into it, right? It's so weird listening to you talk on the podcast about why stories work and why stories don't. That's why, like, I say the tree, you know, it's a, it's a story I like, huh, I don't get it. My first reaction is most people's reaction. When I went back and no, there's something, this is Phil, this is, uh, HP Lovecraft. There's something going on here that I'm not seeing. And when I finally found it, I'm like, oh my God, now I like this story. Right? He didn't write that for a market. He wrote it because there's something important there. And it, it was not, it had nothing to do with his skin color. It, it's just, he happened to be one of these guys who was capable of doing this. So how, what can you get from reading a bunch of PhD black people or PhD Latin X? What can you get? I don't know. Maybe there's something there. I think it's just, a, it's some, it's like a weird category mistake. And yet it's a massive phenomenon that's happening. I don't know how to find that BIPOC tweet, but I'm going to have to look for it now. What do you think? I mean, I, I probably will read more BIPOC people. When I get back to Taiwan, because all my BIPOC books are on my shelf. BIPOC books. <laughs> well, I got to do some more Zora Neale Hurston. I got, I got, uh, Library of America published, is published a new, uh, another, uh, W.B. Du Bois book. Um, what else? Yeah. There? But you're not reading Frederick them Douglas. because they're BIPOC, I think I got are you? Frederick Douglass' autobiographies, which I want to dig into. But you're not saying, I need to read more BIPOC. You're saying I need to read more Nora Zeal Hurston. Yeah. I, I, I really want to grapple with her fiction. I, I did a series on her nonfiction, which is easier to grapple because she doesn't. Um, in her novel, she writes it all in dialect. So I really need good audiobooks, but I've been having trouble getting like free ones because they're not public domain yet. Well, just put out the word, make your list, and I'll give it to you. Doesn't yeah. take that long. Our plan when, this year when they, is when to she talk about totally in dialect. You almost need the audio. Oh yeah, I love that stuff. Uh, our plan. I can understand, understand African American vernacular English perfectly if I hear it, but when it's written, it's really a struggle. So listen to this. It says our plan this year is to talk about a lot more books by BIPOC, 
If you're a publisher releasing books by BIPOC creators, novel, novels, novellas, comics, and non-fic of interest to SFFH, I guess H is horror, nerds, get in touch with us. Put us on your lists. Skiffy and Fanty at gmail.com. Or gmail. So I'd rather just have, like, it's kind of well-meaning because it's saying, oh, we should support writers of color. That's, That's what okay. it's saying, yes. That's fine. But I'd rather just have, like, reparations and get it, you know. Just yeah, but the, this is instead of represent. This is instead of reparations. Notice that Skiffy... Equality. I'm going to just do a search for Skiffy and Fanti, and I'm going to bet there's not going to be any word in there for reparations. How much do you want to bet? Skiffy. Okay, Skiffy and Fanti. There it is. Oh, it's hard to spell. And Fanti. How do you spell reparations? Oh, Fanti. Rep- R-E-P-E-R-A-T-I-O-N-S. Reparations. Reparations. Oh, with an A. Okay. Reparations. I'm hitting enter. Nope. Now, what does that prove? (laughs) Nothing. Except if if you say, okay, reparations aren't feasible, we want to support writers of color. But if you type in Skiffy and Fanti BIPOC, there's an endless stream just from like this last year. For the record, Skiffy and Fanti's focus on black voices. Writers, it's actually I think the Library of America needs to do more to like get some indigenous writers. Like who? Um, Like who? What's her name? There were some, but they're mostly writing politics. I, I mean, the good stuff is really political. The stuff written in the like that first generation to come out of boarding schools. Mm Hmm. Right, residential that, schools um, is what we call them. That they were very highly political, and, and they were kind of that first generation of the American Indian movement. Mm-hmm. They wrote some good stuff, but I'm, I'm kind of blanking on their names. Okay, but they're not really writing fiction. I guess they're writing they're writing really interesting politics. Right. Um, stuff from AIM, I guess. American I Indian movie. I think there, I think that would be a good volume for them to publish. Would be something like American Indian, like political writing. I'm going to type yeah. in. But of course, SF even if, if you go back to like the speeches, I mean, that's actually something Indians excelled at was like speeches. That's the whole. That was like how they did politics, right? Who gave the best speech? Like their speechcraft was much more advanced than. In fact, and some people even said they were like. As good as the Romans, because the Romans also took seriously speechcraft. Of course, America. of course, and and the Iroquois were like top notch. You know who doesn't take it seriously these days? American politicians. They're fucking awful, man. Yeah, it's it's bad. They're like they're, they're not literally <laughs> well, the retarded, format, like, but they're the they're of these debates and the way conversations are done. It, basically, debates are just Twitter back and forth, right? Fucking terrible. I mean, you got like one minute to respond to a, no, a two minute rant or something. But, you know, even like. You should go back. To, I think we should go back to the Lincoln Douglas style debates where someone talks for an hour, someone else talks for an hour, and then someone. Or <laughs> someone talks for an hour, someone else talks for an hour and a half, and then the uh, the first guy gets to rebut for a half hour. <laughs> that that I'd like to see. I'd like to see Trump and Biden try to do that. 
<laughs> Trump could do it. Trump Trump can talk for an hour. He doesn't uh, at all of his uh, rallies. Yeah, yeah, I guess that would be advantage. Trump in that case. <laughs> That's why they don't want it to happen. It be like, the cabal is be, against it. First, it they say the deep state doesn't exist, and now they say the deep state is my ally. It's not exactly Cicero. No, it's not Cicero, but he is working on material. Right? Yeah. I'm not I'm not like I've watched a lot of them, but um, no. so this it's is, all this ex- is a contemporary extemporaneous. You should submit it to like SNL. Too bad Mad TV's not here anymore. <laughs> it's like you're in the Roman Senate, Cicero's all good speech, and then some guy with the red hair comb over stands up. <laughs> you're a simp. I said your wife is fucking ugly. You did <laughs> nothing like, about it. Like, oh, you you let You're the loser. It's across the Alps, huh? You, well, you probably weren't even born in the Italy Italian Peninsula. <laughs> <laughs> My slaves, they're the best slaves. <laughs> That's, That's two. Worth writing up. <laughs> It's a good idea. It's a good idea. Yep. So, yeah, uh, uh, Voyager is not as shitty as I remember it being. Yeah, I don't think it is. I I do think, though, that there was a bunch of, like, ideas that got, like, discarded in Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. Mm. And the Voyager writers are like, what's here? And it's like... One of the oh, things... If we go warp 10, we turn into salamanders. One of, uh, one of the... There's two plots that they did extended. This is the second season where they did extended arcs. You know, like sub-arcs or, you know, not under the main stories. One of them is... Um, oh, I guess there was one before that. Neelix is a cuck. Or Neelix... No, Neelix is worried about being cuckolded. Um, that was one, I guess, from the late season one or something. And then he makes friends with Paris... And then Paris starts acting badly on the job. Um, and it turns out that that was all like a setup, uh, to get him fired. Um, and he went off to another, uh, ship to like, it was like a, he was going to act like as a counter spy or something. Um, but then there was also a subplot where, um, uh, someone on the ship, oh, there was this spy on the ship who was, uh, She's not a very great character, but she's like a, she was, a, it was a good setup, but a bad, it's badly executed. She was a, um, Bajoran, but she was actually not a Bajoran. She was a Cardassian who was like surgically altered, um, oh, I remember. to, to the, yeah. enter the Maquis and she was Chakotay's lover. And then, uh, she defects to the shitty bad guys that the Voyagers have. Um, although they're just done shittily. There's some interesting yeah, ideas was, yeah, there. I think that was a lot of the criticism of like early Voyagers, like those villains are kind of lame. There's some like, good backstory, like but they they're like a tribal society or something, yeah, right? Yeah, and they're rea- they're re- in reaction to another group that we later meet, and uh, we are supposed to have sympathy for, and it turns out that they're just fucking assholes. Um, actually, that's a sort of decolonization story. In fact, um, straight out of this story. Now that I think about it. Um, they're the Trabe, they're called. The Trabe uh, occupied all of the, uh, whatever those people are called. Um, yeah. I guess they're supposed to be like the French or something. And they got occupied. What, the, the Kazon? The Kazon, yeah. 
the Kazon Ogla, right? The Kazon this and the Kazon that. So they're like gothic tribes or something who uh, uh, threw off the shackles of, of the Trabe. Now the Trabe are homeless. And uh, what's her name? Uh, Janeway's told by Chakotay, we can't keep doing this. We need to get allies. Um, let's sit down with the Kazon. And uh, and then the Trabe show up and they say, hey, we're, we're, we look like humans. We're really nice. Well, the Kazon hate us because we were occupiers. We were bad people. We occupied their land. We were horrible. And then they have a meeting and it was all like a, a thing to kill the Kazon. Right. And like Jane Weiss, I'm shocked. <laughs> I'm giving my mad face. <laughs> also, we're supposed to find, uh, there's some lady on the ship who's having a baby. Um, he's got spikes on his head. Um, her husband's back in, uh, some alien is back in the Federation. And, uh, when Janeway comes to the, uh, the, um, doctor's office to visit the baby, she says, uh, is it a boy or a girl? <laughs> and then she says, it's a little girl. And she says, and have you chosen a name? Because I'm making a blanket. I just need to know the initial. <laughs> like, there's no fucking way Janeway's making a blanket. <laughs> she's, got, the, she's using her replicator credit. <laughs> even if she's making a blanket, I don't think so. It is replicator credits, absolutely. But she's like, um, they're trying to make her all things. Um, which is, is not perfect because she's better as yeah, sort of this. Was, I think she was a problem. Like, like, like one episode, she'll be like, we gotta I'll pull the prime directive. And the next episode, she'll, she'll yeah, they're to violate the prime a directive. A little too flexible. Whereas with, with Picard, we get his standoffish, right? Yeah. And that, that pays off at the end where he finally joins this, uh, card game that had no purpose other than to show that he's not there. Right. And to show the lower officers hanging out. Um, so that final, that's why that show works is because there's a payoff somehow. But she, uh, only thing we know really about her is she has a husband and she likes her dog. Right. <laughs> but she doesn't have any kids. Right. She's a little old not to have her kid already. Well, she made her career a thing. Right. So there should be something going on there. Um, and, and so the, the, her character's a little off. The acting's fine. Um, but the show is actually, it's, it's fairly good. There's some shitty episodes in the, you know, the weak, weak thinking behind them. Um, yeah. but, uh, it's, it's okay. It's okay. And compared apparently to, there's like some really weird stuff like behind the scenes, like, the guy who played Kim was like complaining, like, why am I still an ensign after like four years? I did all this heroic shit. Yeah. Right. And they're like, well, we need an ensign. Yep. Yep. You know, so. <laughs> What's funny is he's trying to get promoted actually, without, on the show. Without casualties, which, you know, who, you know, you got to promote. You know, there's only so many senior officers you're going to have on the ship. But even so, uh, the, uh, there is no crew. Uh, they call people crewmen. But there are no, uh, there are no enlisted, right? There are no enlisted people on the ship. As far I haven't seen one yet. Right? Even Neelix yeah, shows up to senior some. officers' meetings, right? But no, they don't show there, any the of them. Enterprise. There are on the Enterprise. 
We're we're told that Brian, Brian's an enlisted. Yeah, but he started well, as an officer. Like, he started as an officer, but he got demoted to <laughs> enlisted. <man. laughs> he was a lieutenant. He <laughs> got demoted three ranks. <laughs> oh my god! He was a bridge officer. Um, <laughs> at one point on the, I guess isn't that the joke though? Like everyone's an ensign, right? So it's kind of a, it's kind of communist, with, even with rank. So there, there's, but there's like a lot of old people, and uh, one of the one of the words I heard uh, just the other day, I'd never heard it before, which surprised me. It's called, something called a Mustang officer. If you look it up, it's it's basically it's somebody who started in the lower ranks and who got promoted to officer and uh, became you know a higher rank person. So they're generally older, right? But most people, they join the military, they leave before they become a major or captain or something, right? They, they're they in, they're there for a little bit, then they're, they're out. They leave as a lieutenant, right? And then the people we hear about, they tend to be, you know, lifelong. Um, yeah. And that's true in the lower ranks, too. Most people don't get, become a sergeant, right? They leave as a corporal if they're lucky, right? And so... The idea of Starfleet being, um, like you've got all these ensigns who are like f- in their fifties with white hair. Um, it's not really the same thing. So how do we explain this? Well, Harry Kim, the actor explains it to himself. I, I did all this heroic shit. That guy in, on deck seven who we just see in the hallway, he has a white hair. He's an ensign too, but I did this heroic shit. How come I'm not getting promoted? They need to, like, they needed to have addressed this in a certain sense, like, if we're spending all this time thinking about it, they need to say, well, ranks aren't what you think they are, right? Ranks are more positional-based, and each position you're in, like, so what they could do is they say, okay, if you're going to be uh, on the bridge, and you're going to be science officer, you need to be a lieutenant. So we're going to have to promote you, I'm sorry. And another guy says, well, I don't want to be lieutenant, so... That's fine. I'll I'll stay an ensign. The pay is all the same. We don't get paid, <laughs> right? So it's just like for coordinating purposes, it makes sense. This is how the communist military works too, right? They have officers, um, and I'm sure the pay is different. But the idea is, you know, they're all comrades, and yet uh, there needs to be an up down rank for in battle. But if we're doing it the anarchist way, the, uh, the way the pirates do it, right? Captain is a rank, uh, that you get voted into and you can get voted out of. Yeah. And, and so they needed, they needed to address it in that way in order to it not be stupid. That's what they should have told Harry Kim and they should have written an episode about why Harry is always going to be an ensign because he's operations officer. Although, uh, the equivalent of that was um that's data yeah data, data was, who was uh, a lieutenant commander right but he, he was acted, also like the second officer yeah and it, uh, oh, that's he's true you could ar- you could argue it that way um but also there's no science officer on on voyager and there's no science officer uh and there's no um counselor on the ship either and they did eventually get one on deep space 9 the right is the counselor she Kess? The, get a two-year-old to do all the counseling? <laughs> I'm just being a pervert, pervert there. I mean, she is pretty good at it. I, but no, I, I do like the idea of, of, of him being 
you know, Neelix being cooked. <laughs> no, I mean, it's funny, but it's yeah. not it's not it's not enjoyable to watch because he's just jealous all the time. Um, eventually, it does pay off in an episode where with him and uh, Paris on some planet somewhere. I forgot how they they rode out, Kess, because she should like die. I haven't got to that. I haven't got to that point yet. But I assume uh, she didn't want the actor didn't want to like recommit to this role. Mm-hmm. Uh, in which case, that was a huge mistake. This is basically the only payday they're ever going to get. Most actors, yeah. right? I mean, Patrick Stewart has got. Uh, oh, and uh, Riker just showed up for an episode. With a Q. Oh. Uh, some Q, they beam out of an asteroid, and he accidentally... Yeah, I told you this. He accidentally... Uh, he tries to kill himself, who's a man, and he actually disappeared all the men on the ship. But see, <laughs> I just spent all the time thinking, well, I identify as a man? <laughs> It'd be great to see the... If you're in the cafeteria and all the girls are at the table, one of the guys who identifies as a woman... He's had all the implants and all that stuff. Shush, all they disappear and he's like the only one left. Like, oh my god, it's not true. The implants just drop there on the table. <laughs> <laughs> the lips. The lips, the inflated lips and the breasts plop there like a, like a slug. Oh my god. <laughs> what's so, what's so funny is um there's all sorts of stuff um like they, they can't do like if they brought in a Q now it would be like it would not work at all but the Q shows up and uh, regular Q shows up and he does his Q thing uh, but he's also like he appears in in Janeway's bed um, and he does all this sort of sexual stuff towards Janeway but he did all the same stuff to Picard too that's the funny part right. Yeah. Like, so is it explained why does Q explain why he doesn't just bring him back to the Alpha Quadrant? Oh yeah, she he actually says I I could bring uh, and he shows Janeway Earth, yeah. right? He says if you rule in my favor in this hearing you're having, I could totally do that. And then at the end he says she doesn't even get to ask him before uh he uh, he disappears but he says I'll see you again or something like that. So I assume there's another Q episode somewhere in the series. Yeah, that they should have done that at the end instead of instead of whatever they did to get him mm. back. Yeah, I don't remember the end. Show up and said, "Oh, didn't I promise you I was going to send you back?" Wow. Well, then the series ends. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. I, I I can't even remember when when does um what's her name seven of nine show up is season three or something? Uh, is that Scorpion. a replacement? For yep. Cass? Scorpion. But is that uh, like three seasons in? So I must be getting close. I think it's the fourth season. Oh, okay. The, the end of the fourth or the end of the third? It's it's a crossover between two seasons. Okay. For the episode, it's basically Janeway has a chance to like destroy, like like to let this other species destroy the Borg. Mm. And and she's like, I can't. Well, Chakotay's like, yeah, just let them fuck up the Borg because the Borg suck. <laughs> Janeway's like, well, we got to think more cosmically or something. We got to think more. We gotta think more globally here about this. And <laughs> anyway, she ends up aligned with the Borg. Wow. And they send Seven of Nine as like uh in- intermediary to help fight this other much worse species. Hmm. <clears throat> but it's actually a good episode because you see I remember it being good. Chicote and Janeway. And in a way, Janeway's sort of right. Like, yeah, the Borgs suck, but these guys are even worse and you know. 
I'm, I'm, I, I think they should have done more How with Jacoby. How much did they fuck up stuff in the, you know, in the Delta Quadrant? I didn't spend. I, 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 we don't spend much time with. Uh, we spend a lot of time with Paris. We spend a lot of time with, um, with uh, Janeway. Uh, but those are technical times. We don't spend much time with Chakotay at all. You know. Yeah, he's not the most well-served character. I think that's one problem with with Voyager is like, like Tuvok. You don't get too he's, much feel for him. He, but you know, he's he's a, uh, the role is well defined, and. You know, yeah, you don't see a lot of him meditating in his quarters, or, you know, or dealing with anything. But his character's well different. He's got a, he's got three kids. Like Kim's got a little thing with Paris, and they're like trying to pick up the twins or something. Right, and that's it. Right, and, and there's not much with him. I think Bolana is, is is fairly well developed by the end, and then by the end it becomes the Doctor and Seven of Nine show. The that's, Doctor's just he's just a perfect. Like fun character. Yeah, the doctor. They, His Beowulf episode is 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 one of the best next gen. It's like better than most next generation episodes. And then they do a lot with Seven of Nine, and all the rest of the crew sort of gets ignored. But, yeah, uh, I'm not a fan of Neelix as a character, but I like I like I don't know. Just I don't like spending time with his character. There's one episode where he becomes a journalist on the ship. Um, and does investigations. That's what the episode called his investigations. And he's like, but what I like is, is he's actually a really dark character, but he pretends to be bright. And because we always see him bright when he goes to the dark, I'm like, Oh yeah, this is interesting. Right. But he, he spends all his time being bright and che- cheery and chirpy. Hello, Mr. Vulcan. <laughs> <laughs> but actually he's dark. Um, you know, he's got this horrible backstory and uh he you know, he he even says stuff like I don't like being this way or something, but I need to be or something like that. But uh it's almost like he, they picked up an Indian scout, you know. And we're, yeah. I'm going to take you through the uh territories and we blow some shit up. It just happens to be our tribe is the one that you know, you don't, those black feet are really bad, but, uh, us Cherokee, we know what it, where it's at. Um, and they never address, I, I don't remember them ever addressing it that way, right? Like that he's, he's got an agenda, which would really be well served. He's, he's kind of plain. He's just happy to be on the ship. Um, mm-hmm. and that's yeah. unfortunate because there, there are ways of playing it, uh, a lot more and, the thing that I remember bugging me the first time is that we never see Neelix's ship ever again after that one time at the beginning, right? It's in the shuttle bay. We never go to the shuttle bay. And they have endless shuttles. They get blown up all day long. Never mention an industrial replicator. So I, I was like, when I was watching the show, I was thinking originally, they need to have like a scene where they go to some planet and they buy a bunch of, of um, shuttles. Because they just, how many shuttles did they blow up in the first season? Like four or five, right? And their ship is small compared to. Yeah, I think the the Enterprise only had four. They had two shuttle. They had two shuttle bays, but they didn't have like twenty shuttles, right? So how come this ship has? Reminds me, there's there's a episode of Discovery, which I don't think you watched. It's in the second season, Mm -hmm. where it might be at the end of the first. I think it's the second season. I only seen part of one episode of. Discovery. And 
like the Enterprise is there and Discovery is there, right? And they're like on one side and they're fighting Section 31. And it's a big battle, right? And I don't know. The writers must have like just watched a World War II movie or something because they're like, wow, we want to do that. So they remade these starships into like aircraft carriers. So they oh, and the shuttles coming out. Shuttles to be fighters. But there's like like a thousand shuttles come out of the Enterprise. <laughs> And the equal number come out of Discovery, and they're all getting blown up. You know, everything's getting blown up. And it's like these they're shuttles cruisers. It's like way more than like the ships. But you know, maybe they're that's cru- what they're had. they're yeah, literally like, cruisers, right? There, that's well, if you go back to the original TOS, um, they have the the war with the Romulans the first time, right? They're submarines and they're cruisers, yeah. destroyers going after. After uh, subs, right? They are not. They have cannons and photon torpedoes, just like. Oh, like Battlestar Galactica. That's set up. That's an aircraft carrier. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's. But yeah, Star Trek was never that. No, and Maybe that's why you have all these hotshot pilots. Whereas there's but only there's one really more submarines. You're right. Like the that one episode of whatever in the and Klingons series. are submarines too, really. Yeah, because of, of the fact that they can cloak. So yeah, <laughs> why why do they not have clo- why does the Federation not have cloaking device? Because they don't use submarines. That's a stupid reason. <laughs> because that's all a cloak <laughs> is. It's, it's it's a sub, right? <laughs> it's a it, the metaphor breaks down, and that's why that, all that Section Thirty One bullshit after after uh, even in Deep Space Nine it was a little bit bullshitty, um, but like. You call that, they call that fan service, right? Call that fan service. That's legacy bullshit you should totally ignore. Spend your time doing that Indian Scout yeah, thing. There was like one episode of Enterprise where they kind of touch on the creation of Section 31, which is fine, I think, because I think it's implied that in Deep Space Nine that this was part of the founding charter of the Federation or of Starfleet or something. Mm. But what they did in Discovery is they made it a whole, like, proxy government. The like, Deep State. They're like just, Section they're, yeah, 39, uh, 31 is the Deep State. Mm-hmm. He, he, you know what? If I was, if we were working on, we should just write a script for a, a, a ripoff, or Orville ripoff. Call it the Wilbur. <laughs> it's a ripoff of it's a drama version of Star Trek version of Orville's comedy. Okay, so uh we have uh an Indian scout um on the ship. Uh we we decide what kind of ship it you know there's a show um I really wanted to like it. I thought it was a really good idea for a show. It's called The Last Ship. Have you heard of this show? It ran quite a while. I don't know. Last Ship. So it was a math, it was like a, a 2014 to so four year show, right? Um, it, some cruiser destroyers out in the middle of the ocean and, um, there's a plague hits the world. And, um, by the time they steam back into, uh, Florida, almost everybody's dead. Um, and they're sort of just trying to keep the military going. It's kind of a similar to Voyager in that respect, right? 
Um, yeah, it says the crew of a naval destroyer is forced to confront the reality of a new existence when a pandemic kills off most of the Earth's population. And I really like the idea because they, you know, they have they have military force and they have you know discipline and all that stuff, but also all your families maybe mostly dead. Don't you want to go and defend them? What are you going to do about it? So it takes this giant U.S. military advertising dollars, and and that's really where it went wrong, right? Is that, well, you can't do this and you can't do that, and they just didn't have a lot of great writing in it. But the premise was really good. The premise, it was like, oh, yeah, that's that's a good idea for storytelling. And it all precedes the uh, latest pandemic. Missile destroyer. So I guess they just like contracted with them. Somewhat familiar. Maybe you mentioned it before. I don't know. I I don't talk about it a lot because I didn't watch that many of it. Oh, it says five seasons, fifty six episodes. But it it is um, it's interesting because if you can't. if you're a captain of a ship and you can't, you know, go back to port and have them hang your guy, right? Um, then the only thing keeping you in your job is your charisma and your ability to keep the crew, uh, happy with your work. Whereas, you know, Captain Bly, he's sort of stumbled and, uh, they put him off his ship and uh, they have to run and hide. You, you know, all that story of the, yeah. The mutiny on the bounty. There's your tri-racial racial isolates, except it's not tri. <laughs> um, and then it sounds like the whole island's history is a shit show. Maybe that's why you don't want all the, the poors running things. What do you think? You know about the history of, uh, what's that island called? Bitcairn? Yeah. Like it sounds like about the poor is running things. Yeah, I prefer it. How about we just don't have so many goddamn poors? Just make everybody a little richer. Full full of anger and resentment, right? So uh, I'm a big fan of pirates. I'm pretty tired. I'm gonna go to bed. Yeah, go to bed. I'm a big fan of pirates, but I don't think I'd want to be in a pirate ship. I just think if you're a slave, it's way better than being a slave. Way fucking better. You know, pirates better than being a That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I, I, so I'm not saying everybody should be a pirate. I'm just saying if your choice is slave or pirate, go for pirate every time.